All right, so let's do this. And just a warning or a quick disclaimer before we get started. This is going to be unscripted, and you guys know me and how I tend to, you know, ramble. I can be rather long-winded. So this could end up being an hour-long episode, you know, featuring some guy just talking about, you know, losing his beloved dog, his, uh, you know, their pet passing away. So if that sounds like something you're not interested in, you might want to just turn around and leave now. I'm, <laughs> I have given you fair warning, you know? So you guys may have seen a very kind of brief, uh, perhaps even curt message that I posted on both the Weekend Out Facebook page and on Twitter. I'm paraphrasing myself, but it was something to the extent uh, or effect of, Sorry, guys, no show this week. Uh, my dog had to be euthanized a couple of days ago or something like that, you know. And uh, following that, I, I just completely backed off of social media. First time I've done that in, in a while. And, you know, I'll see my Facebook app on my iPad or whatever, and I'll see that there's like 41 notifications or whatever. So I apologize uh, to you guys who I usually interact with via, you know, Facebook or Twitter. And once I get this show out there, um, I'll probably resume, you know, getting back to uh, social media. And I find myself, and it's not something I'm proud of, I, I find myself being somewhat hesitant or, you know, worrying. I, I do this a lot, I think. And this is something I've actually been complimented on in the past regarding the show. I tend to offer or put forward this kind of devil's advocate point of view in opposition to my own argument, as if I'm trying to intellectually test the metal or merit of my own argument. In a way, it's like I'm trying to focus in on or predict what counter-arguments or retorts you know, people on the other side of the argument might throw at me. And I think in part, I really am doing this because I value intellectual honesty and I'm trying to be fair and objective. But I think there's another reason why I do it too, because I'm self-conscious. I don't like criticism. So I will try to cut my critics off at the pass by voicing what I think their counter-arguments or, or criticisms will be, you know what I mean? So I, I think there is a kind of um, a solid intellectual reason why I tend to try to, uh, you know, voice the devil's advocate approach to my own uh, take on things. But there's also that other, like, more personal, more kind of sensitive or self-conscious reason why I do it. And that, like, negative critic in my head was kind of saying... If you do an episode all about your dog dying, people are going to be say, saying things like, was this guy a pussy? You know, was a grown man going on about losing a pet? You know, and then I'm like, I really have to stop worrying about shit like this. And, you know, this is my platform. I can use it how I want. And since, uh, you know, I have a relatively small following and I think those like loyal listeners and, you know, I, some of my listenership, you know, I, I consider friends now, the, the type that I've interacted with for, you know, years now. Um, and I think my loyal listener base likes it 
when I'm honest and I just express, you know, kind of bear myself before the world and say what I'm really thinking and really feeling. And anyone else, you know, who cares? Who cares? I mean, I might as well be true to myself and just nakedly express what I'm honestly thinking and feeling, you know? And uh, if someone would judge me for expressing too much emotion or whatever, or sentiment for a beloved pet passing, then they're probably not someone I'm interested in knowing or interacting with anyway, you know? But I think most decent people possess a certain degree of empathy. And uh, I think probably I would like to think that across party lines, whether you're an atheist, a believer, a Democrat, uh, a Republican, I imagine most decent people understand or can relate to the sense of loss one feels when you do lose a beloved pet, especially um, a kind of relatively advanced mammal like a dog or a cat. And so, like, this is just going to be my honest kind of expression and exploration of my own thoughts and feelings in the wake of this loss. You know what I mean? And I was going to say that how, you know, I'll often see people post things on social media about the loss of a beloved pet, about the loss of a family member, uh, maybe a brother or sister, maybe a a mother or father or grandparent. And my kind of automatic or gut response is that I feel for the person. And often I'll want to reach out to them and often I do, but sometimes I don't know if the person would you know, prefer some space. It can be kind of tricky to navigate. But I imagine if the person's posting about their loss, you know, on social media, on Facebook or whatever, that might be a signal that's all right to, you know, respond to the post and let them know how sorry you are and uh, how your thoughts are with them, etc. But I don't know what it says about me, but I would also at the same time think to myself, if I was in their shoes, I don't know if I would post something like this on social media because to me, the loss would be so personal and I would have so much like a feeling of respect and duty to the memory of the person or animal that I lost that I wouldn't want to seem like I was turning their loss or their memory into internet fodder or, you know, or something like that, or as a vehicle for getting pity or sympathy or attention from, you know, people on social media. And then I noticed, though, when I lost my pet, I think when you, it's nice to say that, you know, but when you're actually in the throes of loss and grief, I think there is a natural tendency to want to reach out to people and express what you're going through, you know? So I did offer that, that quick mention of the passing of my dog on social media, I guess probably for two reasons. Uh, one was simply that I felt like I had a duty to my listeners and YouTube viewers to let them know why there wasn't going to be an episode that week and why I was about to disappear 
from social media. <laughs> you know what I mean? And also, it, you know, I have to try try to be as honest as possible. I think it probably did allow like a, a certain kind of outlet for me. I got to express, you know, even if even in that short tweet or that short post, I let people know I was going through something and I let them know what it was, even though if it was short. So that offered maybe this kind of a little bit of, you know, kind of release or catharsis. But I didn't post about it on my personal Facebook page because I was worried that maybe, you know, it would be like I was making my dog's loss more about me than them. And I knew I'd probably have like 10, 20, 30 or whatever people, you know, saying sorry for your loss, and th which is nice. And I actually saw that some listeners and, and some you know, listeners I interact with on Twitter, that some of them did offer me their condolences and, uh, you know, and uh, let me know that, you know, I had their best wishes and their sympathy or whatever. And that did surprisingly make me feel good. And I imagine if I did post about this on my regular Facebook page, my personal Facebook page, I probably would have got a lot more of that. Uh, but for some reason, yeah, I felt a little conflicted. I um, I think I was still so deep in the loss that it just would have seemed, I don't know. I don't know what the word is, but it was my loss. It was personal. I, I, I was still at the peak, you know, of it. And um, I don't know, maybe I did, maybe I still had some of that that kind of feeling where I, I felt like I didn't want to turn my dog's loss into a vehicle for, you know, sympathy and or, and attention or something like that. I don't know. But to the many of you out there who have posted, you know, about the loss of a loved one, whether it be a, you know, a family member or a beloved pet, uh, I'm totally with you. And I'm, I'm, I'm not judging you for that. And I think my take is probably... The minority take, you know, most people do think it's all, and I do, I think it's all right for other people to do it. Like many things in, in life, I tend to be harder on myself than I am on others, but I think it's perfectly fine. And, and, uh, I completely understand why when you're, when you've lost someone and you're grieving, why you'd want to reach out. I think that's the normal human reaction. And so, yeah, I mean, if you've been listening to the show for, you know, any length of time or whatever, you've probably heard me mention my, uh, my long-haired chihuahua, Olive. And uh, it, it's funny, ever since, uh, some people might say, why a chihuahua, you know? There's, uh, I know there's a lot of guys who maybe they think it's like an extension of their masculinity or something. They, you know, there's the stereotype of the guy who wants to appear macho, so has the, the big powerful dog, the pit bull or whatever. Well, ever since I was a kid, I think I was like a little kid, like Leave It the Beaver was way before my time, but there were still, you know, re black and white rerun, reruns on when I was a kid. And I, there was a, an episode of Leave It to Beaver, unless this is all some weird hallucination or dream, where uh, Beaver, ha I feel self-conscious saying Beaver, uh, where, Be where Beaver had a little chihuahua. 
and he tucked it away in his coat. And I think, you know, he didn't want his parents or something to find out that he had this little dog. He didn't want to be forced to have to give it up, you know. And I was, uh, I think I was just amazed that, like, a dog that little actually existed. And for some reason, I thought it was really cool. So when I first moved away from home, and this was the first dog that was ever mine, you know, my dog, not a family dog, um, I decided I wanted a dog and I wanted to be a chihuahua. And so I started, you know, looking online and I found a place in Massachusetts called Yankee Chihuahua Rescue. And they had all these available dogs, you know, that were uh, available for adoption. And I saw this one dog named Sparky and his picture didn't really do him justice. You know, he looked like kind of a little, maybe kind of an oddball, a misfit, which might make you think right away that'd be the dog for me. But, you know, he looked a little off, but he was like one of the only dogs available. And so I arranged for one of the, um, I don't know what the word is, one of the volunteers or representatives of the charity to bring this dog to where I was living at the time. And the person comes, they have this little carrier, like a small carrier, and they open it up. And I could not believe how small this dog was. It was it was amazing. And uh, had the cutest face. For some reason, it didn't come across through the photos on the website. But he had, for you who aren't um, initiated into, you know, the Chihuahua elite or whatever. Uh, chihuahuas have come with two types of heads. Not one Chihuahua with two heads, like some kind of weird miniature Cerberus. Cerberus had three heads, right? But <laughs> Greek mythology. But, you know, a, a chihuahua can be either what they call a deer head type or an apple head type. So a deer head type of chihuahua is like the Taco Bell dog, where they have kind of a flat, elongated, pointy face like a deer. An apple head chihuahua has more of a baby face. It has more of a compact muzzle and they have a round dome-shaped head. And so this is what the, this dog was like. He was this tiny little fluffy dog, black, white, and brindle, which is somewhat kind of rare for a chihuahua, and a, uh, a rounded head with a little face. And so I just like fell in love with this dog I thought was the most awesome thing. And so like two days la later, they let me know not only was I approved, but I could come get the dog, which I did. And I changed his, I, I, I like, it, it was, it was like torturous trying to find, you know, you probably know, a lot of you out there probably know what's like struggling to find the, uh, the perfect name for a new pet, uh, quite the kind of, uh, Herculean effort or whatever. And, uh, I, I think at this time, this actually may have been before I went back to school for graphic design, but I had always been into art. And I think maybe recently I had been, you know, I'd like, I'd watched a documentary on Picasso and I started getting into the work of uh, Pablo Picasso. And all of a sudden I thought Picasso, and it might seem pretentious to some, 
but just seemed to fit that dog perfectly. It was like a cool, unique name and it matched the dog and it reflected like my interest in art. So the dog became Picasso and, uh, Chihuahuas have a bad rap, but this was like the most laid back, quiet and gentle dog, almost like a rag doll that you would ever encounter, you know? And from the moment I picked him up, you know, when I went to the foster place and got him, he insisted on being in my lap. And this is, there goes that annoying little pop from my computer, you know, when it starts to warm up. Anyway, I'm not editing that out. <laughs> so, um, it, it was really weird how he bonded with me, like right off the bat. And I like stopped by my parents' place to introduce the dog to them. And he just kept on coming back over to me, didn't want to leave my side. And for a long time, if I even left to go out to my car for a second, or if I took him with me and I, you know, closed the door behind me so he couldn't get out and, you know, I'd pump gas or something. That's the only time a noise would come out of him. And it would be like this desperate high pitch yipping, like, please don't leave me alone, you know? And so I got super attached to that dog and very similar to the Chihuahua I just lost. Once he got around those senior years, like nine or 10 years old, and one of the reasons why I like little dogs is they claim that they're long-lived, like a Chihuahua, or like I had a Yorkshire Terrier growing up, which lived to be like 19 or 20. It was crazy. Um, but yeah, but Chihuahuas are known for how long-lived they can be. And my last two Chihuahuas have both died when they were just really getting into those advanced years. The dog that just passed away was roughly 11 and that was roughly the same age as Picasso. And he developed like lung problems, heart problems. He was on like a Nalapril. He's, he was on Theophylline, which I used to be on. It's like an old school asthma drug. And it's, it's uncanny how like, I remember when I was a kid, I used to say how I thought it was awful that people had dogs euthanized. You know, because I love dogs so much. And I thought, we don't do that to people. You know, people get a say in whether, you know, they want to, you know, be euthanized or stay alive or whatever. The dog can't even decide and, and we kill it just because it's sick. People get sick all the time. We don't, you know, just euthanize them or whatever, you know. And I obviously have a totally different take now where I think it is uncanny how a dog will kind of let you know. You just feel it in your bones when the dog has reached the end of the road. That dog is just suffering. It can no longer function. And you realize for out of love for the dog, you have to do something. But I don't know why I'm bringing this up now because actually Picasso wasn't euthanized. But that morning where I actually had to have a family member drive me and I rushed through, we were trying to get through a bad New England snowstorm to the vet. And I was holding him on my lap and I knew something was wrong because like he already had like a cough and, and stuff because he had heart and lung trouble. But he was, his posture was different. It looked like he was holding his head up, like struggling for air suddenly. And he was such a nice, mellow dog, but he was making like this almost 
angry honking noise, like he was in really in bad shape, you know? And he died in, in my lap on the way to the uh, the vet. But my guess is if he had survived the, the ride, they probably would have told me the best thing would have been to euthanize him. And that dog I grew up with, that Yorkie, who ended up being like 19 or 20 years old, I actually ended up taking him to the vet for my parents to be euthanized. Uh, just one more, this dog just kept on ticking, you know, and he was kind of scary near the end. Like the last few years, he was losing a lot of hair, uh, losing teeth, cataracts, uh, just a nasty smell coming off of him, but I would still hold him and I'd like, you know, I'd shampoo him and all that stuff. Uh, but one day he couldn't get out of his bed and he was making a horrible honking noise. It's like these the dogs really do let you know when they're just in agony and can't go on anymore, you know? Um, and it's funny. So I got Olive to help me get over the loss of Picasso. And you can never fully get over the loss of a dog. And I think the idea of trying to replace a dog is obscene. You know what I mean? And I think most people, that's not in fairness, that's not their intent. You're not trying to replace the dog, but you feel such acute loss, such despair, and you feel their absence so deeply that you hope, you hope that maybe by caring for another animal, it might ease some of the pain or make it easier to move through that acute loss, you know what I mean? Um, so like, I owe, I still think of Picasso, but it's like positive in a way. Like I remember him in this nice, warm, sentimental way. Only rarely will I, you know, will I really be hit with the horrible thoughts about the, you know, his last hours or whatever. Usually, it's just like when you lose a human family member. After a while, I think part of it is just the nature of memory. Human memory isn't perfect. And I think as day after day goes by, just just due to the, the nature of human memory, you start to kind of... You roughly remember like the good things and you carry that with you, but the sharp, nagging memory of the agony the animal was in at the end starts to fade where it, it can be at least be bearable to, to kind of try to put one foot in front of the other and just focus on the positive. You know what I mean? I don't know if any of that makes any sense, but with the passage of time, it gets easier to go on. And... So I got Olive to help me deal with the loss of Picasso. And I remember um, bringing home Olive. And she was like a super cute puppy, man. It was ridiculous. And still, I, I, I'm, it was my idea to get her. And I'm the one who, you know, paid for her, brought her home and everything. I was like, still, there was a part of me that was like, uh, she's not Picasso. You know what I mean? And I, a little bit of this 
this dog can't measure up to Picasso. He was the greatest dog ever, you know? And now I'm in that same place. It's come kind of full circle where I feel like Olive was the greatest dog ever. And I'm, I am, I have been looking and it might see, hopefully it doesn't seem like untoward or, you know, this, I'm part of the grieving process. I've already started looking at classifieds and stuff and, and trying to get in touch with breeders because the loss I feel is just so horrible. And every day, like, I might think I catch the glimpse of like a bushy tail moving through the next room out of the corner of my eye. Or I'll be like, I'll be eating something and I'll want to turn around to give her a little piece and she's not there. Or I go to check on her in her bed and the bed is eerily empty. You know what I mean? And so I feel like I can't replace her, but if I go and get another puppy or whatever, um, it will help me deal with the loss and it might let some kind of metaphorical sun in, you know what I mean? Um, so yeah, I remember I had a lot of trouble finding a name for Olive too. But uh, I I can't even remember, to be honest, but there's a chance it may have been partially influenced by that Drew Barrymore animated Christmas special, All of the Dog, oh, All of the Other Reindeer, which was about a dog who wants to be a reindeer. And she actually had the same colors as my dog. Uh, or it could have been just a name I eventually landed on that kind of um, had a nice ring to it, you know, and seemed to fit her. And it really did fit her. And I found out after the fact that my father had an aunt named Olive who I didn't know about. So that was kind of a weird coincidence. Um, yeah, she was... Uh, it's weird because... I used to think that Picasso was the most, he was the most, he was the most gentle dog I had ever encountered, but all, each dog has their own personality and all have had like a personality that I really almost like respected or admired. It was weird. She was complex. Like she, um, was a very gentle and affectionate dog who loved people, but she was also, like, strong-willed. And if she wasn't in the mood for something, she'd let you know. Like, um, if you if she was sleeping and you, you decide you wanted to take her out to go to the bathroom, she might give you, like, snarl, look back at you and snarl a little. Like, okay, I get it. I'll back off a little. You know what I mean? Uh, or something like that. Or if you tried to give her a pill and she wasn't in the mood, she wouldn't bite you. But she'd lift up the lip to let you know to back off or whatever, you know. Or if she really wanted something, you know, it's it was kind of like cute but obnoxious. Like she would stand up on two legs, put one leg on the table, and bang. Like literally bang with her other paw, with her nails on the table to let you know, on the glass table to let you know she wanted treats that were on the table. Or if she wanted food, sometimes she would just look at you and bark, like a demanding bark. Um, but at the same time, she loved to be picked up. She loved to be, like, petted. She loved to, like, come in the bed at, at night, and she would, like, curl up on my chest. And while I'm trying to fall asleep, she'd be nudging my fingers 
with her nose to let me know she wanted her head petted or pet or whatever. Um, so it was really wild. And she would actually like, she barked more when people tried to leave than when they came in because she liked people so much and she didn't like seeing them leave. It was weird. But just like a super cool dog with a really kind of complex but fun personality. And so when she got to be like, uh, yeah, like, I can't believe how time flies. I can literally remember bringing her home. And uh, now it's like, she, she was 11 years old. I got her when she, she, she was 11 or almost 11 when she passed. And I got her when she was 10 weeks old. And I cannot believe like a decade or more has transpired that quickly. And when she was around, I would say nine going on 10, she started to develop this cough out of nowhere. And I knew she had a heart murmur when she was just a little puppy, like her first or second vet appointment. The vet says she has a mild heart, a small heart murmur. It's something we're going to have to keep our eyes on. And I can always remember like every, almost it seemed like every day or whatever, I'd be trying to think about her age and, and wanting time to slow because I, I know how, how short dogs' lifespans are compared to ours, even as a long-lived breed like a chihuahua. And since my last chihuahua didn't, you know, only live to be like I don't know what his actual age was. They were guessing he was one to two years old when I adopted him. And I think I had him for roughly like nine or ten years when he passed. But I, I would have hoped he had, would live as long as the little Yorkshire Terrier, Yorkshire Terrier I grew up with. Um, so I was nervous that she might start getting sick around ten or something. So I wanted her to age as slowly as possible. And it, it, it was kind of sad, you know, when another year would go by. And so when she was like nine going on 10, um, she started to develop a cough. And the vet, you know, the vet she had her whole life said, he, he like seriously put down his stethoscope and said, it's time. It's time to have her heart looked at. And so I had to take her to a, a, a veterinary cardiologist. And uh, they gave her uh, an ultrasound to look at her heart. And, you know, I'm someone that has to, you know, I, I, I just scrape by. I have to work to make ends meet. And the ultrasound alone, I think, ended up being like 600 and something. And he goes to me, um, the, the cardiologist, I think it's best that we also take some x-rays. And I'm like, oh, here we go. And I'm like, you know, I'm like, more money. But I'm like, just hoping this guy isn't trying to pad the bill. And he's a, you know, actually an ethical doctor. And I'm like, if she needs it, do it. Let's do it. And so he gave her uh, x-ray. He had her x-ray too. And I think the the bill ended up going over a thousand or whatever. But hey, I mean, what mattered to me is that she gets the treatment and she stays alive. Um, and he talked to me with what to, from, I mean, I don't know. It seemed like at the minimum 20 minutes, maybe 40 minutes going over all the stuff. And he said that it didn't look like severe, um, 
congestive heart failure. It looked like, you know, but she would probably get there at some point. But for the time being, he said it's a little dog with an enlarged heart and some breathing issues. And so he put her on uh, sildenafil. Yes, Viagra. <laughs> I'm like, what? But turns out uh, Viagra was originally a heart medicine. You know, because the way it works as a boner pill is it, it dilates or opens up blood vessels to allow more blood to, to go through your system. And so that's what it does for people and dogs with heart trouble. And then they also prescribe the special heart medicine that's pretty pricey called uh, the, the brand name is Vetmedin. The generic name is um, Pimobendin, I think. Kind of a funny uh, name. And uh, so she was on that too. And... So I'm like, I felt pretty good. I'm like, oh, so it sounds like her ticker is not that bad. You know what I mean? And um, yeah, so he was supposed to forward all of her information to her primary vet. And I noticed in the notes, it said something about a distended belly. He, he, quote, he noted it being, quote unquote, abnormal, but free from free from pain and quote unquote any any kind of fluid wave meaning he didn't detect fluid in it um and that would kind of come back to haunt me or, or us or whatever uh me and her um because it's funny i was giving her like she, i had her on a special like dog food diet so she would lose weight and the weird thing was she was losing weight but her belly was getting bigger. She had this like distended belly. And so leading up to all this, to, you know, recent events, I had tried to get in touch with her, her primary vet. I think he wasn't in. So the girl behind the desk or the person answering the phone said I should go to the, uh, the animal hospital where the cardi the cardiologist is located and bring my concerns to them. Uh, they never answered. This was around the beginning of all this coronavirus stuff. So I got in touch with her uh, her primary vet, finally. And I'm like, she's acting a little weird. Her cough is getting worse. I'm wondering if it's time to add Enalapril, another heart medicine, to her regimen or whatever. Um, and he was like... Well, uh, and I also mentioned the distended belly. And he said, well, uh, it's probably not uh, a big deal. We probably don't need to add enalapril at this time. I, you know, I saw in her notes that the doctor said she wasn't really, quote unquote, in congestive heart failure territory. You know, she was on the edge of it. And that her, I asked about maybe she needs some kind of medicine for her lungs too and he said i and this is someone i thought for the most part is usually a good a really good and ethical and caring vet he didn't want to add any medicines and then the next day she started acting really weird like her cough went from getting worse to her being like eerily quiet i'm like something's not right it doesn't make sense for a dog with a chronic cough to for the cough to suddenly 
completely disappear, but you can tell something's off with her. It's not like she was suddenly miraculously healed or something, or like she had a milk bone in her throat for two years and finally coughed it up. You know, I knew something wasn't right. So I called him again because that sa that day, she, uh, she, I noticed that she was standing up, she was like sitting up with her neck, just like when my dog Picasso, the last day of his life, sitting with her neck raised up and uh, almost like falling asleep in place in a sitting position. And she never does that. She does. She never does. Remember the doozers from Fraggle Rock? She never closed her eyes like that. Only occasionally would you see her fighting to stay awake, and it was when she was in a normal resting position. And she was acting like off, like she was unsure of herself, like she couldn't get get up steps by herself, like she would tentatively practice, like she was going to go up a step when she could effortlessly leap over things and stuff. It was very kind of weird and, and unsettling. And then, uh, so I picked her up just to like comfort her and hold her. And all of a sudden she let out like a screeching sound and her limbs went, went limp and her head like craned backwards and she just flopped like a rag doll. And I put her on the floor and her legs just went splayed out under her. And so I'm like, I'm rubbing her and, you know, trying to, I don't know what, you know, rubbing her, her fur, trying to stimulate her back to consciousness, you know, calling her name and stuff. And suddenly she came through and I'm like, holy crap, because here we are in the midst of coronavirus. And I thought I was going to have to bury my dog in the backyard, you know, and if I knew if I was going to be where I am for the rest of my life, I probably wouldn't mind having my dog in the backyard. It'd actually be comforting. But I hate the idea of like burying your dog in the backyard and knowing that you'll probably move at some point and, and you have to leave their remains behind. I just don't like that. Um, and so I called up the vet and when I said she had craned her head back, he said that's symptomatic of a seizure. And so, and it was weird. Like the vet seemed kind of like almost irked or irritable not like he's usually a really laid back guy and he seemed to be kind of grumbling about because of COVID-19 they couldn't even have owners or, or I don't even know if they're having animals in their building and so I said like well what could this I'm like that doesn't make sense that's a seizure I mean it very well could be a seizure but that would be pretty alarming because she's a senior dog and she's never had a, se a seizure in her life. And so I asked him, I'm like, what could cause a 10 or, or 11 year old dog to suddenly have a seizure when they have no history of it? And he's saying, uh, I don't know. And he, he rattled off a few things. And among them was a tumor, possibly in the brain. And I'm like, that's not comforting, you know? And he said, his advice to me was to start a journal, a medical journal, and just start noting down the duration and the time in between seizures and the characteristics of the seizure or whatever. And I'm like, okay, I guess I'll do that, you know? And then the next day, she was even worse. Uh, I could see that they tell you when you have a dog with heart or breathing problems that you're supposed to monitor 
their breathing. And the way you do that is like you get a stopwatch and you either look at them or put their put your hand on them and you time how often they're breathing within a minute, how many, you know, inhales and exhales they have per minute. And I think like a healthy dog is supposed to be maybe somewhere in between the high teens to the high 20s or something like that. Anything over like 30 and you should start to be worried. And she was breathing once per second. It was not good. Um, And she just seemed confused and out of it. And I'm like, I'm taking her to the animal hospital. So I called up the emergency clinic where she had her like cardiac appointment and all that. And they said, yeah, they're still seeing dogs, but owners can't come in. And, uh, you know, it's almost like you pull up and there's an attendant in like a booth and you talk to the attendant and let them know you're there and someone comes out and gets your dog. So I did that, and it was weird. On that last ride to the vet, she started acting like herself again. I think maybe her adrenaline was pumping because of the uh, the excitement of being in the car and not knowing what's going on. And she was funny. She oh, and Actually, my other chihuahua used to do this too, Picasso. Whenever I would drive, they would insist on being in my lap. And if I tried to move them, they'd get right back in my lap and she and both of them would like put their arms you know or front legs on my uh on my forearm my left forearm while I drove and they would look out the window and I'd always keep the window up enough so uh, you know they couldn't fit through I'm you know kind of like a uh an overly uh, doting or concerned pet parent or whatever. Even though most likely a dog is smart enough to know not to jump out the window, I didn't want to take any chance. So if I opened the window at all, it'd be like two inches, you know? And it would always you'd feel this weird kind of tent. You'd be driving, trying to turn the wheel, and you could feel the pressure against your arm because this little dog's paws and legs are pushing down against you. And they're just, they'd stare out trying to take it all in, you know? Uh, and so she did that. And so I parked the car to the side and a nurse or whatever came out with a mask and gloves on. And I also had a mask and gloves on. I was using one of the, one of the masks I would use at work, you know, doing construction. And I kind of said, you know, half jokingly, I'm like, don't worry about the mask. I'm fine. Just a precaution. And she's like, says the same thing back. And so she takes the dog in and I'm just in, uh, I'm in uh, my car in, in the uh, parking lot, and I don't know what I expected. I was concerned, but not too concerned. I think I was I was aware that something major could be going on, but at the same time, I think I also thought, or maybe it was just hope, you know, that whatever it is, maybe it can be fixed with more medicine. And I'll be leaving here today with my dog, you know? So for like 20 minutes, I'm just kind of looking at social media, trying to get started on an episode script. And uh, I was going to do a script that week. Uh, I mean, I was going to do an episode that week. And it was going to be one of my little scripted documentary episodes. And it did have to do with animals, but don't worry. It wasn't like a vegan 
documentary or a vegan or you know an animal rights episode it, it had to do with animals but it was about this really kind of weird bizarre thing from like medieval history this kind of like folksy belief about plants and animals and i don't want to give too much away because i'm gonna end up still doing an episode on it so don't worry for you for those of you who are worried that i might be uh you know, sneaking vegan content into the week in doubt, which is, of course, a podcast, a podcast for atheists, agnostics, and whoever just had to think for a minute about my own tagline. Um, it was just going to be a weird, one of those weird history kind of things. But since it did kind of have to do with animals, I was in no place to be talking to, to be talking about animals because I'd be thinking about her and I, I wouldn't be able to do it, you know? Um, and so, like, maybe 20 minutes into sitting in the parking lot, or it could have been more, I don't know, um, the doctor calls me on my cell phone, uh, like she was calling for me across the parking lot through, a, like, a, uh, I don't know, we were talking through soup cans and a, and a, and a string. No, she, she called me on my cell phone, and uh, she was saying that she wanted my permission <clears throat> to do some tests. And... Uh, I said to her that the thing that concerned me was her abdomen. I said, she's actually been losing weight, but her abdomen is bigger. And I, and I said, that does not bode well for me. And, it's, and it seemed to me that maybe she was retaining fluid. And the, the doctor, the vet was like, wow, you're pretty much saying what I was going to say to you or whatever. And she wanted my permission to do an ultrasound and x-rays. And I knew this was going to cost like another thousand bucks or more. I didn't care. I'm like, do whatever you have to do to find out what's going on. And so while I'm waiting for the next phone call, I'm literally applying for a credit limit increase for care for my care credit account. If you're not familiar with care credit, it's like a credit card, but that you can only use for medical reasons, but it includes, it includes, it includes dental and vet stuff. And so it's very convenient and handy that way. But what sucks about it, if you don't pay off what you owe within a relatively short window of time, I don't know if it's uh, three months, six months, whatever, you get hit with a super high interest rate. So it's kind of parasitic and, uh, you know, or like uh, most credit cards and crap like that, you know. Um, but luckily I was able to double my credit line right away. I mean, they're probably, oh, sure. You want a higher credit? Sure, man. Let's get you further into debt, you know? And, uh, so I get the next call and I'm kind of pissed that this vet had a really nice bedside manner. Uh, you know, bed, I, I don't know. I'm in the parking lot, the dog's inside, but you know, figure of speech, bedside manner. And, uh, and, uh, I'm kind of pissed though in retrospect, cause she started off in a way that made me very hopeful. She goes, so we, we took the x-rays, we did the ultrasound and her heart and her, um, her lungs actually don't look that bad. It looks like things haven't gotten any worse since her last visit. 
And I'm like thinking to myself, holy shit, this is awesome. You know, I'm like, oh, oh, thanks. You know, th that, that's, that's really good, you know. And then she gets the other shoe drops and she gets the bad news. And she's saying like, you're right to be concerned with her, her swollen stomach or whatever. Um, she says, it looks like she has a big tumor and it ruptured. And I'm like, holy shit. You know what I mean? And so I'm trying to figure out what it means. I'm like, can we cut it out? Uh, what do we do? Uh, you know? And so it's like she was, went on to tell me that the reason why she's have, probably having so much trouble is because it's gross, man. Like these, I, I almost want to be mad at the tumor, but the tumor is just, you know, we know what cancers and tumors are there. You know, I, I think that, I, I think, yeah, there are things about modern life, like our diets, probably pollution, chemicals that we're exposed to that I think can probably increase even drastically increase our chances of developing certain types of cancer. But I always thought just given the nature of cancer, that cancer is probably just about as old as multicellular organisms, multicellular life itself, you know, because all, all cancer is, is it's cells that have run amok. You know what I mean? And as multicellular beings, our bodies are constantly making, duplicating, you know, new cells. Um, so it's almost in some ways you could say it's surprising that cancer doesn't develop more given the nature of being multicellular beings and what can go wrong with that, uh, you know, regeneration or duplication, replication process, whatever. Um, so I'm almost, almost still find myself pissed off at the tumor, even though it's just an organic growth on the dog who I loves or in the dog who I loves body. Um, and they're basically, they're vampiric or parasitic. Tumors will actually feed off of your dog's or yours, your, your blood supply to feed the growth. You know what I mean? To feed itself. And so what happened was this tumor reached the part where it ruptured. And so she had all sorts of internal bleeding. And on top of it, her blood count was down because this thing had been leaching blood from her and more blood may have been lost from the hemorrhaging, the internal bleeding. So they were saying that she would need like a splenectomy and she would need, need blood transfusions and everything else. And so I'm like, I'm like, if she has a splenectomy, what's that going to cost? How much time will it buy her? I mean, because I was thinking as long as it was humanly possible for me to scrape up the money or get it via credit, I was going to do it to keep her alive, you know? And so she told me, and I found this out, my, you know, for myself, it was what she said was kind of uh, verified by my own research online, that splenic tumors are one of the most common types of tumors or cancer in dogs but for some reason it usually occurs in bigger breeds like labradors and retrievers and stuff um but and it makes me wonder if did picasso go through the same thing because the day he died he was showing the same kind of symptoms or behavior and they told me at the vets that you know i gave i gave them 
to, I gave him to them wrapped up in a blanket and they confirmed my worst fears that, yeah, he was dead. And it probably had something to do with his stomach or maybe the lungs and, and heart, which that's a possibility too, that his belly was probably full of and distended with fluid. And so, and here my Apple watch died and it usually unlocks my computer for me. My computer just fell asleep. So sorry about this, guys. Um, when I say guys, I mean male and female listeners. You know, guy. I call everyone guy. But a guy, dude, whatever. Um, but I think it's common to refer to even female friends as guys. But, uh, you know, hey, guys, what do you want to do? Why did this suddenly become like a PC uh, uh, social uh, issue thing? I don't know. But now I got to type in my password and get the computer to open up so I can continue recording. So um, I, I guess that's a common type of cancer with senior dogs, with older dogs, usually dogs from nine or 10 years up. Um, and I guess there's something called the two thirds rule where vets basically expect that, you know, two out of three dogs who have this kind of tumor, it's going to be malignant. And by the time you find it, it's already spread to other parts of the body. And so she told me that she also had enlarged or swollen lymph nodes and uh, her adrenal gland or thyroid or something. So other glands and organs or whatever were also... Uh, unusually kind of large and swollen, which would seem to indicate that the cancer had spread throughout the body. And she was saying sometimes a bigger tumor can be a good sign in a weird way, even though it sounds counterintuitive. It can signal that the tumor must have been there a while without killing the animal. So there's a bigger chance it might be... Um, benign but then she's still telling me it looks like it could be malignant because it looks like it spread to other parts of the body and she did she said if you did want to try the surgery and it's malignant you'll be lucky to get two to three months out of her and it, she'll probably still be in pain and the cancer will be emerge you know will be wreaking havoc in other parts of the body and she'll eventually die on her own or you'll have to bring her back here to to be euthanized and i'm like okay in case i want to go against all all the odds and do every thing i can to save her even if i only get a couple of months out of her i say how much is all this going to cost i say if i said if i can afford it i'll pay it you know even if I have to go further into debt. And she tells me we're looking at at least five grand. And in retrospect, I mean, after the fact, I went online and I saw splenectomies being quoted from anywhere from a thousand to over five thousand. And I guess in part, it depends where on the map you are. Maybe it's kind of like rent or housing costs. You know, I don't know. Um, maybe vet. Uh, you know, veterinary costs are higher and, uh, you know, here in the Northeast, I don't know. Um, but 
Yeah, so she said 5,000. And I said, that's more than, you know, even you know, even considering the the doubling of the credit line I got while I was waiting in the car. That The credit I have isn't enough to cover that. I sure as hell don't have 5,000 in the bank. In fact, I've been laid I've been laid off because of the coronavirus for 3 weeks now and uh I just received the first unemployment check uh and they were supposed to do a thing where if you were affected by coronavirus and I let them know that when I was filing for unemployment I said, you know, temporarily laid off because of everyone's been non-essential workers have been uh, ordered to stay home. And I ain't got a, a, a job that you do from your house. I have to be at a physical location swinging a hammer, you know. Um, uh, yeah, so it's getting kind of scary. I've already had to try to get in touch with creditors and let them know. Um because supposedly they've been try creditors have been trying to spin a thing like, you know, to try to uh, come off as kind of warm and fuzzy, the kinder, gentler creditor that we're willing to work with our um, with our customers and possibly you know defer payments because we understand what you're going through. And I know so you go to some creditors and try to get that done, and they're like. Oh, oh! Just call us, and we can help you defer a payment. But we have to, we have to warn you that call times are greatly increased. And they're saying because of their, their workers, the safety of their workers, um, they're keeping their, their uh, employees at home for the you know for understandably for safety reasons because of the, um, the coronavirus. And I'm thinking. If there was ever a job you could fucking do from home, wouldn't it be uh, being, a, you know, uh, a, a, a telemarketer or, you know, whatever it is, uh, a, a phone person, a phone representative for a credit card company? Wouldn't that be like the ideal job to do from home? All you're doing is talking. And sorry for all the F-bombs. I'm just, I'm letting it all out. You know what I mean? Um... So that seemed weird to me. And all I can imagine is because obviously we all know the ongoing joke because there's truth in it that most, um, most, uh, if, you, if you're here in the West talking to, uh, you know, a phone rep for a credit card company or whatever is, they're most likely on the other side of the world. They're most likely in India, usually, you know. And I always thought it very weird that. I don't know who is encouraging to do to do this, if it's the big bank companies themselves or if it's whoever they answer to over in India. But they they'll it'll clearly be someone with a thick Indian accent and they'll try to tell you their name is like Brad or Dave. I'm like, really? It's like Um I'm not racist. I am very you know, for since I was uh, a teenager, I've been interested in Indian culture, Eastern culture, in Hinduism, in the in Eastern philosophy. And I'm like, I am with you, my Indian brothers and sisters. Tell me your, you can tell me your real name. You know, <laughs> so, you know, you're, you're, you're talking to someone with a really thick Indian accent. Like, this is Dave. How may I help? I'm like, really? But anyway, so I'm wondering if, 
all these people who I'm sure are gro grossly underpaid, they probably have them reporting to some kind of tele telemarketer center or something, you know? I'm like, but can't they, if that's the case, can't they, these big businesses, businesses afford to send like phone, fo you know, like some kind of, you know, cell phones or computer and like, uh, I don't know, some kind of microphone gear to these people so they can still do their job, but do it safely from home. It doesn't make sense to me that like for safety reasons, you need phone receptionists or assistants to stay at home due to the coronavirus. I don't get it. I don't get it. But th th these are crazy times. And so anyway, how the hell did I get on this topic? Um, I have no idea. I have no idea how I got on this. I don't know if that's my amitriptyline fog or whatever. But so anyway, um, yeah, I probably got onto this. Oh yeah, I know. I was talking about the cost of having vet procedures done. And I was talking about, you know, if I had to put myself even deeper in debt to keep my dog alive, who means more than anything to me, I would have done it. But they said over 5,000, didn't have that in my bank account. I don't have that in available credit. I'm not gonna, you know, take a top hat and magically have a rabbit shit it out for me or something, you know? <laughs> so they're, they're telling me basically that even if we did do all these costs, co even if we did perform this costly surgery and on top of it, there would be expensive of an expensive series of blood transfusions, this and that, possibly chemotherapy if um, she survived the splenectomy and everything else, you know? Um, and I'm like, I don't know what to do. And I'm like, I can't afford that. You know what I mean? And she's like, she's being very sympathetic. She's like, I know, I know. And she, say, she told me how, and this actually, I found this comforting. She told me she loves chihuahuas and her dog at home is a long-haired chihuahua. And she said when she picked up like the clipboard or whatever, you know, for the patient, she read long-haired chihuahua and she was like, this is the patient for me, you know. So that, I found that touching and that comforted me to some degree. Um, and so she said, oh, I, I know this is hard. And she was kind of, nudging, you know, me towards the direction that the, she basically, she brought it up first. She's like, we have to decide if the right thing for her is to have her, have her euthanized today. And she said that, um, now I'm starting to get emotional. What was it? She said, there I am drawing a blank again. Um, yeah, she seemed to be nudging me in that direction, that the best thing to do for her would be probably to put her down and that even if you had, I had gone ahead with the surgery, if somehow magically I managed to procure the money, that there was still a good chance that she may only live like two or three months and they might not be the greatest quality of months. Because you know? that was scary, man. Because like that last night I had her, I was afraid to pick her up because I didn't want her to collapse again. But I, f I felt so bad for her that... 
I decided that I want her to at least have the comfort of being in bed with me, which is what she prefers. So I gently pick her up in a way where I'm not putting any pressure on her abdomen. And it was like crazy, man. Because there were the first time I th like I live on like right at a, a corner, you know, like an in intersection where two back streets meet. And sometimes during the night, you'll hear like a really loud, the really loud noise of someone driving too quickly and putting on their brakes as they make the turn. And sometimes there's cats either fighting or mating, making like these god-awful screeching noises, you know, as they tend to do. Um, and uh, don't worry, I'm a, I had a cat as a child and I love cats. The only reason why I don't have a cat is allergies. I'm not saying all cats make this. Here I am doing that thing again where I foresee people criticizing me, so I try to beat them, you know, cut them off at the pass. I almost say beat them off. Oh, what, what? Unscripted. But uh, I have a sad story about how I lost my cat, too. Cat named Snowball. I was just a little kid. And I remember even as a cat, here I go on a digress, uh, even as a cat in my, my former life, said the atheist, in my former life as a cat, um, uh, I remember even as a kid, I felt so much for this cat and wanted to protect it. And I was like an elementary school kid. One day, my parents thought it was the right thing to do. Because back in that day, people let their dogs roam around without, you know, being on a leash. People let their cats wander the neighborhood. Um, my parents were trying to teach my cat to go outside. And the cat was like, almost like Sylvester, you know, in like a Warner Brothers cartoon or whatever had all his claws out and was clinging to the screen with all four claws. And I remember feeling bad, like, and saying, you know, mom or whatever. I don't think that the cat wants to go out, you know? But finally, the cat got acclimated to it and actually enjoyed being out. And one day, the cat just never came home. And we used to have this theory that there was a lady who lived across from us. And she was like a cat lady who used to have all sorts of cats. And she used to feed our cat and she would like accuse us of not feeding our cat. And our cat was spoiled and he would eat all the time. Besides cat food, my parents used to bring him home like meat on bones from whatever restaurant they were at or whatever, you know, especially for the for the uh, cat. So, But of course, animals love to eat. Like we're animals, we love to eat. You ever do that thing where you almost criticize your pet for constantly wanting food, but then you think like, wait, I'm constantly opening the refrigerator because I feel hungry and I have to fight to not, you know, eat more than I should. We're, we're like them, you know? And uh, we had this theory that this woman who's to try to chide us for not feeding the cat enough when the cat was constantly eating, that she had, she worked with, not worked with, but she was connected to a rescue place in New Hampshire where she would often bring cats, she found. And our cat went missing right around the time when she made one of those trips. So we never knew for certain, but we had this theory, or this idea, this notion that this neighbor may have taken our cat and given it away. Which, in a weird way, I might prefer because the other awful scenario is that maybe the cat got hit by a car and wasn't, you know, ended up meeting some horrible, violent fate. You know what I mean? I guess 
all things being considered, it, it would be better if you care about the cat that maybe it got taken to a rescue place, even though you were a loving owner, you know, and, and then ended up going to another loving family. That's better than thinking that got hit by a car, killed by some sadistic adolescent or, I don't know, or, or just got lost and died in the wild, you know. Um, but back to my, back to Olive, my chihuahua. And, uh, and so around this time, uh, it seemed to be the lady was kind of agreeing. That's the conclusion of the conversation. The conversation seemed to be wrapping up with the conclusion that the best thing to do as sad as it is would be to youth. Oh, I know what I was talking about why I went off on cats. Uh, yeah. So that night, Oh, and this is what pro this is what prompted me to bring her into my bed. I thought I was hearing either a loud noise of someone put, slamming on their brakes going around the corner, or cats fighting, or th there's another f word, <laughs> you know, cats fighting or mating. Um, but I'm like, it sounds a little different. And my kind of parental or pet owner instincts were like, you have to go to her. So I go to the other room to where one of her beds is that she likes being in. And she's looking up at me. And I couldn't, um, you know, I, I couldn't discern definitively whether it was her making the noise or not, but I was afraid it was. So I took her in the bed with me. And also I wake up in the middle of the night and she's making that noise that horrible screeching noise not next to me, this crying screeching. Now, this is a thing I noticed. Like, I was talking about how dogs almost let you know when it's time. This is the third dog I've had who, when they were at the end, started making, like, airy, disturbing noises that they usually would not make. You know what I mean? That stop you in your tracks and, like, they've never made that noise. And that is a horrible noise to bear witness to. This is an animal that is in, you know... I almost swore again. That's an effing agony, you know? And so I'm like, holy shit. And so this was the middle of the night. And so I put my hand on her, both the comforter and to monitor her breathing. And she had like a puddle of her jaws were kind of opening and she had a puddle of, um, of saliva underneath her on the bed. And so I tried to contact the uh the place the emergency place i was having trouble getting through so i'm like all right i'll just go back to bed and i'll just kind of keep my hand on her through the night and for she started acting like herself again for a bit she like cl climbed up on my chest nudged my fingers with her snout and stuff so i woke up and she wasn't screeching or making awful noises and she was even you know walking around acting something like herself but then I noticed her starting to like, looked like she was struggling, like something was off either with, you know, her breathing or something. So that's when I'm like, no, she's got to go. She's got to go to the veterinary hospital. And luckily I was able to get through to someone. Yeah. So even, like I said, even the vet place, you know, it's like they're somewhat understaffed, uh, humans, <laughs> you know, other than the staff weren't allowed to come in. Um, so even, you know, with, with the, uh, with the veterinary field or whatever, you can see 
the toll that uh, this whole COVID-19 coronavirus thing is taking. Um, yeah, so that is fucking, I'm going to swear, that is fucking awful, man. And uh, it was awful. Uh, it, it's so weird. You know, it got me thinking about theodicy and, you know, all the suffering in the world and trying to reconcile that with the idea of a good and just God or creator. And pets are so innocent and childlike. And here's this little chihuahua with just like these big, innocent eyes, this baby-like, you know, dome head and this fluffy fur, these little tiny paws. And it's looking at you out of the side of its of its eye like it's wondering why it's in pain. And you can't let it know. You can't, re other than gently petting it and looking it back, you know, looking at, lovingly looking it in the eye and trying to quiet it and soothe its pain, it doesn't know what's going on. And here's like this animal that's like the embodiment of innocence. And it's racked with pain and suffering. And it doesn't... I'm almost gonna cry, man. It it doesn't make sense to me. It doesn't. You know what I mean? Um. Yeah. Yeah, I am. I'm, I'm kind of on the verge of tears. I'll try not to go there. Because as I continue with the story, when the lady started to, you know, nudge me towards euthanasia and I started to agree, I said to her, I said, I can't believe how kind of even keeled I'm being and how calm I am. You know, I, I seem to be, you know, I think I'm just in a mode where I have to just, you know, f for her sake, function and or whatever, you know, and I'm almost kind of like low-key bragging about how in control I am. And as I'm saying that, I start blubbering. And I'm just like, I think the last time I really cried was when my last dog died. I mean, I was just blubbering, coming apart. You know, like when you're crying as a kid or whatever and trying to talk to your parents or whoever, and you, you can barely form words because you're so choked up. And it almost becomes physically, physically uncomfortable because you can feel your muscles in your face and in your neck involuntarily straining and it's affecting your speech and your face feels a mess with hot tears, you know? And so I have to continue the conversation to give her and someone else that gets on the phone permission to euthanize my dog. And I'm trying to keep from crying now. And, uh, and I, I just feel like this jelly of raw emotion. And uh, they ask me at that point, they tell me we are letting people in for euthanasias. Is that the right plural? Or euthanizations? I don't know. Um, and they're like, you can come in if you want, if you want to say goodbye. And so I didn't mention that they said the reason why she was breathing so much was probably not because they said her lungs and heart hadn't gotten any worse. It was probably because she was in so much pain and that like broke me, man. And they had to give her fentanyl. And here in New England, we're really one of the kind of epicenters of the, um, the opioid crisis. And so in the news all the time, we hear fentanyl 
mentioned because fentanyl is a prescription opioid that is i think is potentially it's more it's i think it's more powerful than oxycontin or codin or whatever um and it's a big it plays a big part in this whole opioid and here my my computer went to sleep again um and so when they told me my dog was in so much pain or discomfort that she had to be given fentanyl i was like oh man you know and so i really so here i was in my car and the entrance to the place is far away but i can see it and I know I'm going to have to ask to be let in. I know I'm going to have to talk to people. And I contemplated going in there to be with her out of respect for her during her final moment. Um, but I really felt like I couldn't function. I was a mess of just hot tears and I was blubbering. And I felt like even like my diaphragm and everything was like heaving and jerking. Like I, I was just a mess. And I felt like... If I tried to get to the entrance, I don't even know how well my legs would carry me. And I knew from past experience how quickly a dog goes once they're given the injection. Uh, it is like instantaneous. They just go limp. It is unbelievable. Because um, when I had to put, have my, my parents' dog brought to be put down, um... I at least had the solace that this dog was operating on a long time on like borrowed time. It had, it was really adept at, uh, evading the Reaper. You know, this dog was 19 or 20. It had seen like almost two lifetimes for what's the average, you know, the average dog maybe lives to be like in between nine and 11 years. Um, you know, not counting for breed specific you know, um, longevity or whatever. Um, and so I was sad and I think, uh, you know, I remember my father joking, my, my father loved that dog. And so had my mother, this, the Yorkie, but I can remember my father half jokingly, cause this is around the time I'd first started working for the family construction business. We're out in the sun swinging hammers or whatever. And he goes, so he's like, so Mr. Philip, how you doing with uh, the loss of Uncle Nick? Or that's the way way my father talks, and he's kind of you know half jokingly trying to like comedically bro broach the subject or whatever. And I just go, you know, with my character when I'm around my family, I can be kind of closed up or closed off. With my characteristic like screwed up frown, I'm like not not very well. You know what I mean? Almost like a kid. I do kind of revert back to like a kid when I'm. I kind of regress when I'm around family. And my father kind of joke, jokingly laughed and then tried to console me, you know, and he really missed the dog too. In fact, my father missed the, my father cared so much about the dog that he gave me permission to bring it to the vet if things went south, you know. But my father cared about that dog so much that he raced home. So maybe this was right. Yeah, no, so I think for some reason I was home, but my father was at the job. But the day after, my you know, we were working together. So this must have been, yeah, right where I started working for my parents. But for some reason, and it happened sometimes, I wasn't needed at the job where my father was needed at the moment. And uh, my father raced home 
without telling me. And the vet, it was right after the vet put the, put the dog down that my father, he came in just a couple, you know, a second or a minute too late. And he just kind of sadly looking at the dog and running his hand over the dog's body, you know. But I remember the vet we were using at the time was this big, tall, older guy, kind of the... Not that it matters, but just to be descriptive, like male horseshoe patent baldness or whatever, like kind of giant older guy. And he was holding the dog and he said to me, he's like, watch, you know, like he thought it's something I should take note of. And he gives the dog the injection and almost like a boa or like, you know, a mink stole or something. He gives the dog the shot and almost instantly the dog, and this was a little Yorkshire Terrier, is draped over his arms like, you know, like some kind of slinky bow or something. Completely lax, completely out, like devoid of life. And then he laid it on the like bed or whatever, you know, like the at the, uh, at this, I can talk, at this specific vet, did I say Pacific or specific vet? Maybe it was a metal table like most vets have, but I almost remember it being kind of padded, like the type of table they'd have at a human doctor's office for the patient, you know? Either way, he laid it down on the table or, or bed, and my father comes in and gently runs his hand over the dog and kind of silently, without words, says a goodbye, you know? And, uh... I remember I did have some solace, even though that got to me. And uh, actually, I had Picasso then. So I guess maybe in a way, I had some solace in the fact that I knew I had my dog. So there wasn't a complete void, you know. Um, and that might sound kind of cold in a weird way. But as I was grieving for the loss of this dog I grew up with, at least I did have the comfort of interacting with my dog, you know. Um, so I took that, I think, like I said, too, knowing that dog lived a very full life and that it's very rare for a dog to make it to like 19 or 20. I think the, the old, I almost said the Italian dog. What the hell is wrong with me? I think I said it's, it's after one in the morning. So maybe I'm a little sleep deprived, um, that, uh, I think the oldest dog in recorded history was like 29 years old. And I think it may have been some kind of like Australian cattle dog or Australian shepherd or something. But uh, yeah, if my dog, for a dog in general, I just sound really like New Englandy or Boston-y there. Dog, for a dog, in, I don't even know. That's more like New York, I don't know. But, <laughs> but for a dog in general, in general, 10 or 11 years isn't too shabby, especially when you're talking about larger breeds. But when it's a small breed that you know can live up to 19 or 20 years, or even sometimes they say like 14 years is usually like the, ex the expected minimum for a Chihuahua. So when you're, when you're just as attached as I was to her and... When you know she she should have had, in a best case scenario, maybe even another decade in front of her. And when you're just as emotionally invested in a dog as I was with her, 
It was just brutal. And so, like, I was just a blubbering mess. And I felt like I didn't even know if I'd be able to make it in the place without just being a heap of crying jelly, you know? And uh, I did I mention that, you know, I, I'm trying not to worm this vegan stuff in here all the time, but I mentioned jelly. And gelatin is another food I've phased out of my diet because I discovered a, a long time ago, actually, but it was still one of those foods that I would allow myself that gelatin, you know, brand name Jello and stuff, is basically made from rendered down like cow or pig skin or bones and hoofs or whatever it is. So I think it's like rendered down from the connect the connective tissue and maybe like collagen or keratin or whatever. That's where Jello comes from. You know, Jello is like this thing that's everyone sees it as so like. You know, like, um, you know, this innocent fun time dessert. And it's actually made from rendered down slaughtered animals or whatever. So neither here nor there. But when I, one of the things that helped me lose a lot of weight is I replaced like junky snacks with like pickles and jello and carrots, and like jello, even jello that's not sugar-free, you know, even regular jello, it's got like somewhere in between like 5 to 25 calories, depending on if it's artificially sweetened or if it's got actual sugar or whatever in it. So that, that like, uh, so like after like, I would eat a heavy lunch, and then from there on, I would maybe eat a light su uh, supper, and for and at night, if I got like the hungry horrors, <laughs> I would like eat like a couple of kosher pickle spears, maybe like a carrot or a couple of apples and jello. I, I, jello was like the closest thing to junk food I'd let myself eat at night. And that actually, I think it, that kind of thing, that helped me lose a lot of weight. Um, so anyway, uh, how I went from slobbering mess or to uh, actually talking about literal jello. Um, uh, but anyway, so I didn't know, and I, I still feel like shit. I feel like I owed it to her to be there in her final moment. But I was thinking between the pain and the fentanyl and knowing her behavior from the past, like, it's funny. Like, she was never really afraid of the vet you could easily hand her off to a vet tech. But it's funny, like I said, she had that feisty attitude. If a vet tried to like give her like a rectal thermometer or tried to open up her mouth to look at her teeth, she'd start giving attitude or maybe do like a little warning snap, but not touch you or break skin. And uh, so you could hand her off to a vet tech and she didn't mind being examined. But if you tried to do something that made her un uncomfortable, she'd be like, I'm warning you, knock it off. You know what I mean? So I was, my only solace was that knowing that she's not afraid of strangers and that she was probably doped out on the fentanyl and that she would be out like a light the second they gave her the injection, that that kind of made me feel a little less like a piece of shit for not being there with her. And also I knew I was going to, to uh, meet like family or be in touch with family afterwards. 
and uh, face to face. And I, um, I was thinking about that too, that this is probably likely I would have got, you know, I wouldn't have contracted coronavirus from going into this building and saying goodbye from my dog. But that was like something I was thinking about too, because what if I go into this, uh, you know, this veterinary hospital where there's all these people around, um, and we know that I don't think anyone has to work. And this will get into like, you know, I've been thinking about laying a, like a new animal into my heart. And uh, I don't know if there's ever been any cases of corona, coronavirus being spread from a dog to a person. But we do know most likely it started with either a bat and or a pangolin and may have started in one of these Chinese wet markets. So, um, and I think there was at least one recorded dog of a, uh, one recorded case of a dog with coronavirus. But so I'm thinking I'm, I might be, you know, potentially going into a building where there's these people, where there's people and animals, um, and we're supposed to be ta- ta- taking every precaution possible to not expose ourselves, you know? And in a way, I feel like I'm being a chicken shit, like, I think the real reason why I didn't go in and say goodbye to her was just I was so overcome with emotion. I didn't know if uh, on top of it, I'd be able to stand the sight of her being put to sleep. But all I can picture is her little eyes. And I don't even know if she had her eyes open at that point or if she was just passed out from the fentanyl. And uh, wondering if she was wondering where I am. And that that absolutely kills me and just breaks me. You know what I mean? Um, and so when I drove home right from the parking lot, I was like knuckles white because of how how hard I was gripping the steering wheel wheel and I was pissed and I was heartbroken at the same time. And I'm like gripping the steering wheel with all my might, like white knuckles and at the same through like clenched teeth. I'm just like, through my sobbing, I'm saying like, motherfucker, I'm going, why, why this isn't fair? You know what I mean? And and I'm like, it was one of those things where even though I don't believe in God, I was mad at God or the idea of God. Because I'm thinking, oh, there's people out there who actually believe in a just and loving God and all this stuff. And I'm thinking that the most innocent creature I ever knew was just put to sleep because its body was ravaged by a cancer, most likely. And it spent the last two days or whatever, you know, and, and unbeknownst to me, I was probably not fully aware just of how much pain she probably was in. And I'm like, I don't know, like, if a being as good as her, as innocent as her, could be ravaged by disease and could experience that type of thing. And I'm wondering, you know, and I, I, don't, I was just like, I was just bawling, hot tears, you know, my whole like body heaving and just cursing through clenched teeth, saying like every swear that would come to my mind and just, you know, over and over again, you know, why, why, you know what I mean? Um, yeah, it was crazy. Uh, 
I don't know. I think part of the grieving process is guilt. And obviously you can probably tell I still feel guilt. And I'm feeling guilt like maybe if I had caught it sooner or something, you know, even though I could turn that around on the vets, why didn't they catch it sooner? Or why did the vet, when I was explaining her, I think pretty damn doing a pretty damn well good job of describing her symptoms to him, instead of telling me to rush her to a vet, was telling me to just start a medical journal. And why was the cardiologist who had looked at the ultrasound and the um, and the X-rays just noted that um that her belly was distended, but she's not in pain and no fluid wave and didn't send anything over to my vet about how this dog might potentially have a tumor or something. And though it's funny as I found out, I was never able, able to get back to the guy, um, some the cardiac cardiac or whatever department is kind of hard to get in touch with. For some reason they called the old number, my parents' number they had on the book on the books and my father was like, we got a call from the doctor. And he was saying that he had something he wanted to discuss, but it wasn't a big deal. And my father was like, well, you can tell me. I'm his father. And my fa- my parents have, you know, interacted with Olive and all that stuff. And But the guy wouldn't say what it was. He just said it wasn't a big deal. And so part of me is wondering... Was that the thing he was telling me about? And I'm like ripping myself apart over it. And he's like, and and then I'm like, but wait, why would he say it wasn't a big deal if it was a potential tumor? And why wouldn't he have, when he was handing over, transferring the records of the appointment over to my vet, why wouldn't he have mentioned it to my vet that there was something like that? He just noted what he put in the notes I took home. Distended belly. Distended belly. Distended belly, but no fluid wave. No no pain. Because supposedly if it was bad, you know, she would have had pain in the abdomen uh, if it was something serious. So I've been totally lashing myself about this, asking myself if there's something I could have done um, and yeah, and, and so this is interesting and I noticed cause this kind of got me thinking about not just the Odyssey, but when, when the rubber meets the road, what are your real feelings about the chances of an afterlife? You know what I mean? Kind of intuitively. Um, it's funny cause this is some, like, I told you guys how I had a friend also named Phil and this is, my life is very strange. I'm like, now I'm thinking about all this. this a friend, uh, you know, if I wasn't an atheist or a skeptic, I'd think it was kind of spooky. A friend also named Phil who died on October 8th, my uh, my birthday. And I'm not trying to say, woe is me, I have a friend who died. Because this is someone that I didn't hang around with that often. We often, did, he was living at home and he kind of yo-yoed back home. So we did a lot of work for him and his mother at the mother's house. And I would see him and talk to him then. So I'm not trying to like take out the world's, you know, tiniest violin for me. Um, 
It was just like a weird coincidence that this person who I knew, I knew him well enough to consider him a friend, um, died on my birthday. But I remember, and to be honest, I felt bad for him. I felt bad for his mother. And when I heard the news, it froze me in my tracks and it was very kind of surreal. And I, I did feel bad, but I did not cry. And I don't know if, what that says about me, but I think it's kind of normal, good or bad, that people get more attached to their pets than they than they do to people they, you know, even people they would call a friend, but they see every so often. You know what I mean? Had this been like one of the guys in my band, then I, I may have well cried, but I felt bad. And even though, you know, I'm an atheist, agnostic atheist, so I wasn't going to pray for him, but I do what I usually do when someone that I respect dies, you know? I try to uh, at least honor them, even though they're not going to receive my thoughts, you know? I, I try to honor them in my in my mind. I, I think about them. I try to, like, you know, offer them, like, a tip of the hat, like a final salute, like, uh, you know... You were, you were a good person, man. I'm, I'm sad you're gone. And maybe sometimes I'll say to myself, you know, I doubt there's a heaven or an afterlife, but if there is, I hope you're in the best place possible, <laughs> you know, um, or whatever. Or I might like, whatever that means, saying you, you're sending your best wishes or thoughts to the survivor of someone who died. Yeah, you know, it, it doesn't mean that much. You know, a prayer certainly, in my view, don't mean don't mean much. I don't think they're gonna accomplish anything. Uh, actually, the only thing I think that prayers and well wishes can do when someone else dies is they can at least offer some degree of comfort to the survivor, to the loved ones of the deceased. You know, because it can feel when you feel like when you're lost in grief. Um, that at least getting a little, that little ray of sunlight when someone lets you know they care, they cared about the person who died, they care about you and your loss and what you're going through. And they are using that, what I often talk about, what I think is possibly an evolved capacity for empathy as, you know, we're, so, we're a social species. When they use that empathy, you know, to let you know that they are thinking of you and they feel for you. Uh, they're kind of figuratively, you know, across the internet or <laughs> whatever, you know, putting their hand on, lowering their head and putting their hand on your shoulder. I think that's, I think it is a good gesture in that sense. I, I don't think prayers have any uh, supernatural efficacy <laughs> or they can't do anything other than Maybe they make the person doing the praying feel good. Uh, and, and maybe um, at least they do good for the other person that it lets them know you're thinking of them and they're not alone. Um, but uh, yeah, so yeah, I experienced a similar thing I'm going to discuss in the case of both the loss of my dog and the loss of that friend that when that friend died, it's kind of, it was kind of like a reality sandwich. Okay, so here I am, you know, someone who's an agnostic atheist, someone who believes you can't, we can't definitively prove with 100% uh, 
you know, accuracy or whatever, uh, that there isn't a God or an afterlife. It's like to something, it's like trying to disprove a negative. I can't, I can't prove definitively whether or not, you know, Santa Claus or, you know, flying pink unicorns exist, but uh, most of us would probably agree. No, no, we know, we know those, those things don't exist. Uh, it's just, uh, that technical hang up where you can't dis you can't disprove a negative, but most rational people would agree those things don't exist. Like if I said there's a little pink elephant in my room, you can't see him because he's a invisible, and where whenever you go to touch him, he steps to the side. So you know you can't disprove that definitively, but all of us you know who are of sane mind know there's not a uh, a little pink invisible elephant in my room. Um. And I will say, in fairness to believers, I think it's probably a little different when you get into something like the question of a god or a creator, because you can bring in, you can say, well, maybe the existence of a creator is a little more probable than pink unicorns or whatever, or fairies and elves, because we do have the, um, the problem of trying to figure out, you know, how does something come from nothing? And of course, like we have minds out there, scientific minds who do a good job of trying to explain how something actually can come from nothing and how what we consider nothing might actually be a kind of bubbling quantum brew, as I think Lawrence Krauss puts it. Uh, but then again, to be fair, you can kind of say, well, Technically, isn't that bubbling quantum brew still something? And I think, uh, are we still allowed to, <laughs> to mention Lawrence Krauss on the show? Remember the whole thing with Christina Rad and uh, all these kind of sexual misconduct uh, allegations or accusations against him? But I'm kidding. I know uh, technically this is my show, so I can talk about whatever I want. And so even before all that stuff went down, I was never the biggest fan of Lawrence Krauss. And I thought he could be kind of too dismissive when he would... I can't believe I'm, now I'm digressing the time about Lawrence Krauss. But even before the, the sexual stuff ever went down or whatever, the, or those allegations were brought up, I, like, Lawrence Krauss kind of rubbed me in the wrong way. Not rubbed me sexually in the wrong way. But, like, he rubbed me the wrong way because I would watch um, debates that Lawrence Krauss would do with, um, with theists. And I thought he had a shitty debate style, to put it frankly. Like I thought people like Christopher Hitchens, Sam Harris, Richard Dawkins. Well, Richard Dawkins is an evolutionary biologist. Uh, so I think he's really, he, he's really kind of uh, in a good place to be talking about um, evolution, things like that. I think Sam Harris is well-versed on philosophy. Christopher Hitchens was just all around you know, I think a very learned, well-read, uh, well-educated guy. And and Hitch did have a really kind of caustic, which I think we loved about him, sometimes a kind of caustic uh, and combative attitude. But he always did it in a very kind of... Uh, in a very, and sometimes it kind of like, you know, here I am I kind of accusing 
Lawrence Krauss of being dismissive in a kind of negative way, maybe it's uh, hypocritical of me, where I think Christopher Hitchens could be dismissive in a really kind of smooth, effortless way, uh, you know, kind of both entertaining yet witty. Uh, you know, I have memories of him leaning back in his chair, relaxed, legs crossed, pen dangling from his hand, and he'd deliver one of those famous hitch slaps. Uh, you know, these great little uh, witty barbed one-liners. Uh, I used to love those. But I think Lawrence Krauss, I mean, I think, I don't know, maybe I'm wrong, you can let me know. But I think with Lawrence Krauss, we have this guy who's a very talented and accomplished physicist, you know, a very intelligent guy, definitely not going to take that away from him. In fact, the reason why I um, invoked his name is because I was going to say, I think he has some very interesting things to say about how we could potentially, you know, get a universe from nothing. I believe that was the name of his book, right? A universe from nothing. But I don't think he's as eloquent as a Dawkins or a Hitchens, and I don't think he's nearly as well-versed on religion or uh, Christianity specifically as Dawkins is and as Hitchens was, past tense, sadly. And I believe Dawkins probably has a, a pretty good grasp of religion uh, due to his English-Christian upbringing. Uh, yeah, I believe he was confirmed into the uh, the Church of England, the C of E. And I think he says that uh, he pretty much, you know, closed the door on literal belief and religion or whatever somewhere in his teens. Uh, that's the case with me, too, actually. And in the case of Christopher Hitchens, I think, you know, he was a highly literate, highly well-read person and author uh, in his own right, of course. And I think as a work of literature, he was very well acquainted with the Bible. But I think in the case of Krauss, as someone with a relative lack of familiarity with biblical text or whatever, uh, it's almost as if his debate style comes across as boiling down to science is awesome, religion is stupid. You know what I mean? And in some ways, as a non-believer, I'd, you know, I'd agree with him. You know, there's certain things I actually like about various religions, uh, things that I might even find or aspects that I find compelling or moving. Um, but when people insist on taking the, this stuff, you know, literally, I think that then it is, you know, it's kind of silly, not to mention potentially dangerous. Despite my kind of fascination with mysticism and my kind of romantic or poetic leanings, at the end of the day, when you, you back me into a corner and ask me what I actually believe is realistically, objectively true, I'm like a scientific materialist at the end of the day. And so I think he's right when he says, you know, literally believing in these... Um, these religious, superstitious faith claims, it's stupid. You know, these things aren't actually true, and you're ignorant for, you know, if you believe these things are, you know, literally true or whatever. If you believe that Muhammad flew up to the moon on a flying horse and cut it in half or whatever it is, or that someone literally, a, co a corpse like a zombie or you know, when, I know it's kind of a crude comparison, but if you believe someone literally walked on water or rose from the dead 2,000 years ago, that, yeah, I, I think it's kind of, just, you can argue it's ignorant to believe that literally. 
Um, but when you're in a debate and you're up against a skilled and well-educated apologist, you probably have to do a little better or go a little deeper than just religion is foolish, you know? But if you're up against someone like that, like a skilled Christian apologist, I think it helps if you're knowledgeable enough about religion that you can kind of go beneath the surface and kind of get into specifics and offer examples, you know, that help to illustrate just how man-made uh, religions actually are. Um, Christianity specifically, if you're obviously if you're up against a Christian apologist. Yeah, so I think it is more effective when you have someone who has a really knowledgeable understanding of the history of religion, of what, you know, someone like a Bart Ehrman who can, you know, Bart Ehrman used to, I've actually been getting back into Bart Ehrman recently. Is it Ehrman or Ehrman? But uh, those who have been with me from the beginning, you might remember my early episodes where I'd talk about Bart Ehrman and I'd uh, joke about like how I didn't know how to pronounce his name. Sometimes I'd even use his middle uh, initial, D Bart D. Ehrman. I'd say it really fast, so it sounded very odd. But anyway, um, he, I know I saw something I wanted to mention on the show. He recently was on um, Justin Brierley's Unbelievable podcast or whatever. And you can watch the video version of it on YouTube. And Bart uh, Ehrman was sitting across from another biblical scholar who, unlike Bart, is still a believer. And they were going back and forth on things like the reliability of the Gospels, whether the different accounts can be harmonized, uh, the dating and authorship of the Gospels, uh, stuff like that. So Bart Ehrman was coming at from the point that, given what we know of um, the Bible and how it was kind of scribally crafted, you know, it's kind of evolution. Given what we know about all that, um, that the takeaway is probably that, you know, we shouldn't be taking this thing literally, you know what I mean? Um, and it's, it's obviously man-made and his opponent, his interlocutor was coming at it from the point that, uh, yeah, once again, that um, this is someone who's looked at the same evidence as Bart. This is someone who's also been schooled in uh, in in Greek, in uh, Latin, etc., in Aramaic. And his takeaway is that, you know, these early texts reinforce his belief in um, in, in Jesus, uh, that, he, you know, and Jesus as a supernatural Messiah. I believe... Um, Bart Ehrman isn't a mythicist. I think Bart Ehrman actually, uh, he he believes pretty solidly in that there, there most likely was a historical Jesus. He just, he doesn't believe that this historical Jesus thought of himself as um, a supernatural messianic figure. Uh, he may, may or may not have, have seen, seen himself as a messiah because traditionally, the Jewish concept of the Messiah was of someone who is a kind of earthly conqueror, a kind of warrior king, uh, chosen and anointed by God, but uh, not a supernatural being who would physically rise from the dead and that kind of thing. And I think I was just talking about this on the show in a recent episode, but they also discuss... Uh, the influence of Greek philosophy, you know, namely uh, Platonism and Aristotelian philosophy, 
on early Christianity or early Christian thought. And I could be wrong, but I thought uh, Bart Ehrman was kind of talking about how this, at least in part, could have something to do with that shift we see. Traditionally, Judaism didn't really place too much of an emphasis on an afterlife. But of course, in Christianity, we see this uh, evolving idea of, you know, there's a heaven above, a hell below, and uh, that we exist somewhere after bodily death, this kind of dualistic view. And I don't know if it was in the same episode. I've been binge-watching Bart Ehrman videos. But uh, I heard him talk about something I've heard him talk about many times in the past. How to first century Jews, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, wasn't going to be elsewhere. It wasn't some supernatural or ethereal or celestial realm up above us in the sky somewhere, heaven was going to be on the earth and that um, the end of days wasn't going to be the physical destruction or end of this world. Their eschatological view or their eschatology would have been the end of time, the end of days refers to the current evil or wicked age. And when I say current, I'm referring to current to those people at the time. <laughs> you know, not our time, although there's pr plenty of Christians. Uh, actually, this has been going on since uh, the first century. Christians waiting for the return of the Messiah. And everyone's always, each generation is so sure that's going to happen in their time. And isn't it in the uh, the Gospel of Matthew where Jesus is talking about, you know, like the signs of the end times or whatever in that, uh, or the return of the Messiah. And he famously says something to the effect that this generation will not pass before, you know, these things have transpired. And so the first Christians, the early Christians thought that the return of Jesus, the return of the Messiah was going to take place in their time in 2,000 years later and, you know, everyone's still waiting. And so to reiterate for, you know, first century Jews, the, the end of days would have been the end of the current wicked age, you know, and the kingdom of heaven would be on the earth. And it's funny, the word apocalypse has come to be, you know, this very kind of scary word with associations of, you know, the, the destruction of the world, etc. When I, I think it's from the Greek and all it really means is to reveal a kind of lifting of the curtain or something like that. Yeah, now I'm trying to think of the actual Greek word. It's something like apocalypsis or apocalypsis. <laughs> Maybe I should actually take a look. Yeah, that's from the Greek, and it means uh, basically uh, revelation or to reveal, yeah, to uncover, unfold, something like that. But speaking of this idea that the kingdom of heaven would be on the earth, that it wasn't some other realm, there's this line from the Gospel of Thomas, you know, one of the um, apocryphal or outside texts, you know, not a part of the canonical 
Bible. Uh, and I believe the Gospel of Thomas is uh, considered a Gnostic gospel. Uh, but there's a line from it that I've always carried with me that I, I actually really love, despite the fact that I'm a godless non-believer. <laughs> um, it almost had like an Eastern philosophical, almost a Buddhist uh, type of feel to it. Where is it? Um, the kingdom of heaven is spread out, is spread out on the earth, and yet men do not see it. You know, kind of this idea that, um, well, I think if you look at it through a kind of Buddhist lens, it's kind of, it does have that thing like heaven or nirvana is here and now, in a sense. You just need to cleanse your perception or be looking out through the right eyes, so to speak, you know? It's the wonder of existence or being tuned into the oneness of everything here in the present, you know? I can't say I know definitively what the author intended, but it does have that uh, ring of the, perenni of the uh, perennial philosophy. Um, also, it's got kind of a Timothy Leary-esque uh, Aldous Huxley thing going on, you know? But, <laughs> but I've always really liked that. But Bart Ehrman was talking, and if you're not familiar, Bart Ehrman is this biblical scholar who started off as a kind of believing fundamentalist, you know, Christian. Uh, I don't know if fundamentalist is fair, is fair, but definitely a kind of, you know, believing, Bible-thumping Christian. And he learned through his study of the New Testament and through his study, uh, you know, he that required him to learn biblical Greek and, you know, Latin, Aramaic, etc. That he kind of learned how the sausage was made. And it led him to a kind of full um, realization of just how man-made the Bible is. And I believe he refers to himself as an agnostic. And to be fair, he uh, he does quote something else is the reason why he's a non-believer. Not just for these um for these academic you know reasons um, that you know he's well educated on the subject and he's able to clearly see the interpolations, um, the contradictions, etc. But his other reason why he's not a believer is theodicy. He personally has trouble reconciling the belief in a good or just or loving God with all the suffering and iniquity in the world. And, and I always say this, you know, and what, what apologists or a, a lot of Christians will say is it's our fault. It's our fault the world is the way it is. We're, um, we're living in a fallen world or a fallen state because of Adam and Eve. And, and like I joked not long ago on the show, I'm like, that makes God look even worse. Two people ate the wrong kind of fruit, and now all of us are punished with it, punished with death and unimaginable suffering and misery and iniquity. And maybe you can say, well, man's inhumanity, the man, Maybe, you know, you can chalk that up to mankind. But even then, that's kind of messed up because um, it's a, um, still, it kind of 
implicates God, too, because if God knew everything from the beginning of time, was fully aware, had everything mapped out of how you know his creation was going to unfold, all the decisions everyone was going to make, if he allowed it that humans could harm other humans, you know, somehow, you know, it's implying that because of original sin and the, the fall in the garden, it, it was then permitted somehow that man was able to sin or transgress against his fellow man. So God, even then, even when you want to talk about man's inhumanity, the man, God is still implicated somehow. But, um, you know, maybe, maybe Christians might have a little bit of a foothold to say in, in those instances, you know, it's our fault. And I would agree. <laughs> those th- Like the greatest evils in human history, the greatest example, examples of man's inhumanity, the man, um, the Holocaust, etc. Um, I think, yeah, that is the fault of human beings. You know what I mean? But. I don't think it has anything to do with original sin or the fall in the garden. Or, you know, I think that's like a cop-out. Um, but certainly, you know, there's things like disease, um, natural disasters, where hundreds or thousands of people are wiped out, you know, by a natural happenstance. Or I, don't, I don't know how to word it correctly. Um, you know, uh, whatever it is, uh, just natural factors like shifting tectonic plates or, you know, whatever it is that causes uh, tsunamis. Uh, when I think of tectonic plates, I think of uh, earthquakes. But I think, if I'm not mistaken, unscripted once again, I think tsunamis are also caused by kind of like underwater earthquakes, uh, plate tectonics or whatever, right? Uh, hopefully. But... Uh, yeah, so when, when you get into the realm of natural disasters and when, you know, people are just wiped out by uh, the raw forces of nature, I mean, you can't, you can't brush that off as uh, uh, man's, man's inhumanity in a man. I mean, where's God and all that? Um, but yeah, getting back to the, I, I think at the beginning I said this might, I, had, I offered the uh, caveat or disclaimer that this might be like an hour long special of a guy rambling on about losing his pet, but actually it looks like it's going to be at least a two hour, uh, special or episode about a guy rambling on about the loss of his pet. But yeah, to get back to the point I was making about the Odyssey and, uh, kind of the rubber hitting the road and how a personal loss can really clarify your opinion on things like, um, whether or not there's life after death. So when my friend passed away, um, and I said, even, you know, and it's kind of so cold to say, I did feel bad for him and his family, but I didn't break down in tears like I did for the loss of, uh, for Olive. And Olive, uh, she was a family member. She was, uh, you know, people, um, people often, maybe it's cringe inducing to some people, people th- uh, throw around the, uh, the term, fur baby she was definitely my fur baby i'm trying to articulate what the bond is like but you know this might sound over the top to some people or sound like i'm comparing uh animals to having a kid which in a way i guess i kind of am never (laughs) i don't have any uh offspring out there but 
I think I'm, I don't know where, where the saying comes from, but I thought I heard someone say before that having a kid is like having, I mean, it was just in a TV show or something, I don't know. Having a kid is like, you know, wearing your heart outside your chest. You know, that having someone that means everything to you and you're constantly worrying that something might happen to them or whatever. And I think being a loving pet owner is like that, uh, you know, especially when you know that, Right out the gate, unless it's, uh, you know, <laughs> one of those parrots that live longer than we do or Galapagos tortoise or something. Um, you know right out the gate that... <sighs> Another kind of cliche, but it's an apt one I've heard, you know, people say before, is that when you buy a pet, it's like you're investing in a future tragedy or heartbreak. You know that... Pets, relatively speaking, are short-lived compared to us, but we bond so deeply with them. But at some point, you know, we are going to have to deal with that loss. And also, I mean, whether it's a dog or a cat, unless it's some big, scary breed or something, or even if it is a big breed, we still know that our pets have this kind of childlike innocence. So we're afraid if they get out, they could get lost or someone could do something awful to them. So you're always worrying in that sense, you know? But yeah, even faced with the loss of, say, someone you care about, you notice their absence, but you weren't super, super close. You know what I mean? Um, I still remember there was something about the kind of sharp, stark reality of being told that someone who existed yesterday that you knew that they were now gone suddenly bam gone from the world you know what i mean they no longer exist and there was uh, hopefully you know hopefully uh i don't think his mother will ever hear this i think i showed that same concern when i was talking about this before i'm like i hope this person's mother never hear this, never hears this, because they may be religious and they may take some kind of solace in the idea that maybe uh, their son lives on, you know, in some afterlife or something. But as someone who knew him as a friend uh, slash acquaintance or whatever, um, you know, who knew him enough to be taken aback by the news of his loss, I it really kind of brought things into focus to me because I, I feel like when I'm just at my normal baseline, you know, someone who happens to be an agnostic, atheist, a skeptic, a, a non-believer, going through life, I'm like, yeah, I think I have pretty solid reasons for why uh, I, I I doubt the uh, afterlife or a, uh, a personal God or something like that. Um, yeah, I, you know, but who knows? I guess, you know, Maybe there's a small possibility, you know. Uh, but when I really, when I hear that someone dies, it's when it really hammers home the, this, the reality for me that at least from my, looking out from my eyes, that I really don't think there's an afterlife. You know, I mean, there's just something about that stark knowledge that's, like I said, someone you knew is now gone. Their physical body just stopped. You know, it's like an old computer that doesn't function anymore. Um, the lights are off and no one's home. You know what I mean? Uh, it just sounds really, really cruel, but it's like 
they might as well be a stack of cordwood. You know, it's just, it's dead matter. Uh, I don't know how long it technically takes for all the organic matter to break down or for all cellular activity to cease. I imagine there's probably, uh, you know, bacteria having a field day, a lot of kind of recycling or whatever. But you know what I'm saying. It's, uh, they might as well become complete. It might as well be, you know, inert matter. Uh, that the bodies, all that's left is a rotting or preserved husk. The person you knew, I mean, where'd they go? Did they, was their intelligence, you know, magically translated to some uh, supernatural realm somewhere? It's like, it just, and I feel like I have a lot of kind of um, well thought out objective reasons, you know, for why I don't believe in a God or an afterlife. You know, uh, I'm a guy with a, a graphic design degree, so I don't want to say academic reasons or whatever. But, you know, I think I have well thought out, rational, um, intellectual reasons why I doubt the existence of a higher power and afterlife. But I think just like intuitively, when I hear that someone dies, it drives home my, you know, or reinforces my unbelief. I'm like, okay, that person's, you know, that thing that was them, the the, the human mind, as Christopher Hitchens used to say, he used to say, we don't have bodies, we are bodies. That's That's what he used to say. And I guess, you know, in a way you can argue there's something like the soul. You can say that, you know, our psyche, our mind, that uh, at least poetically or, you know, figuratively speaking, that you can call that a soul or you could use that interchangeably or metaphorically for uh, that thing, which is us, which thinks and looks out from our eyes, you know. Um, but yeah, I mean... It sounds really cold. It's not what I want to be true. But when I'm faced or confronted with the death of someone, uh, whether it be a celebrity or someone I knew or um, a beloved pet, it's like, just intuitively, I'm like, I think it, it seems like to me, like, you know, the flame went out. All that's left is the dead body. And it, it just, it doesn't make sense to me. It doesn't feel. Even on an intuitive level, like I said, all, all intellectual, well-thought-out reasons why I don't believe. It's just on an intuitive level, in my gut. It just it doesn't feel true or likely or realistic that the person's mind or self, whatever you want to call it, their psyche, went, to borrow from the Greek, went to some some other realm, some afterlife. It just doesn't seem likely. And for, say, like the case with my dog, I would love to believe that my dog was able to conquer death or survive death. And I think my father, whenever a dog would die, used to talk about half-jokingly, they're, they're now uh, running around in what he called uh, the happy hunting ground or whatever, or the happy hunting grounds. Um, I think the only drawback 
or negative scenario I could think of of my dog being in some kind of heaven or something like that is that maybe she's confused or scared that I'm not there and wondering where I am. <laughs> you know what I mean? But say someone like me, I, I, I want to believe with all my being that she is still somewhere. Um, but I just feel in my gut. I'm like, I don't know. I, I feel like figuratively she lives on in my memory and I've always hated that. I've always hated when people talk talk about loved ones living on in their memory. Because I'm like, that is a paltry excuse for an afterlife. You know, what the hell does it mean to live on in someone's memory? It may be good for the person doing the remembering. It makes them feel good and warm. You know, they can remember you. But you're most likely, I mean, your individual self is obliterated. You know, you're, you, you're not of, you're not even aware of a cold black darkness. You just don't, your consciousness just doesn't even exist, you know? So what the hell does living on, living on someone's memory do for you? But I do get a solace in a sense of, of, you know, the warmth I feel for her, even after she's gone and, and the memories. Um, and of course I'd like to believe that she's not truly dead, that she endures somehow. Um, but, you know, it's like, and you could get into a philosophical argument, when do you cease to be? If we are our bodies, you know, kind of looking at in that Christopher Hitchens type of way, I mean, is your dead body you? Or I don't know. It's like... Um, it's weird. Like I had this other kind of like disturbing thought regarding my dog. I was wondering, is there something like, do we, do we on some level endure longer than we would think a little bit or a little lot, you know, you know, after what we would call clinical brain death? Um, I mean, is there something on some kind of subconscious level? Like, is there a hint a kind of receding little hint of consciousness, you know, after you've been declared dead. And I was wondering, will my dogs laying on that cold veteran, uh, veterinary table or sealed up in a bag in a freezer, you know, it's like, is there something, something like a little flicker of consciousness that hasn't fully gone out yet? And she's wondering why I'm not coming to get her. And, and oh, that totally kills me man it's it's horrible but then yeah i remember like while i was thinking about all this it reminded me of something that uh i used to think about like jokingly like when a loved one dies and i think i i thought about this after like you know thinking sometimes with my grandmother it really hit me when my grandmother died and i was still pretty young when that happened and over the years i'd think about you know, death and in a way would ghosts or something kind of being a bad thing. Like I think about like the negative, but almost comedic um, implications of your loved ones living on as ghosts. I mean, when are they around? I mean, would you want like your grandmother's ghost unbeknownst to you in the room while you're, you know, jacking off in front of your computer or something? 
like a dead loved one seeing you masturbating or while you're on the toilet. You know what I mean? I think we all like to think that we don't like to believe that our loved ones live on and that they're looking after us. But do they do they uh, politely turn their heads when we're uh, sitting on the john or something? I mean, are they always around? But (laughs) that doesn't prove that that ghosts aren't real. But there's there's plenty of like uh, rational intellectual objective reasons why you know i don't believe that ghosts are are real but that's i think that's kind of funny considerations about what could be the downside of this are you know of if our loved ones did uh exist on as ghosts but yeah i remember i was kind of it is funny because i'm the type of person where i try to prepare myself you know obviously being uh an atheist, uh, an agnostic atheist, whatever. Someone who I like to think, I like to think I'm at least naturally philosophical, even though I'm not as well-schooled on academic, you you know, uh, on philosophy from, you know, in the academic sense. Um, I'm someone who naturally likes to think a lot about uh, the nature of existence and someone who thinks a lot about death, as morbid as that might sound. But when I'm at my base level, when I'm not experiencing personal loss, I actually, I find it kind of interesting and stimulating to think about, um, you know, the nature of reality of life and death, you know? Um, and, and so being someone who contemplates death a lot, uh, I often try to like steal myself for the inevitable loss of loved ones. And I would even try to steal myself for the loss of, of my dog. It's like, I know it's inevitable and I know dogs have these really unfairly, you know, kind of shortened lifespans in, in comparison to our own. You know what I mean? Uh, and then it's funny kind of, once again, kind of like dark humor uh, regarding death. You know, I'd often think about things like how there's like parrots and, uh, you know, tortoises that like far outlive a lot of people, human beings. I'm like, yeah, it's not just dogs. We're getting kind of um, shortchanged in that department too, you know? And it's even worse with, uh, I think it has to do with mat- metabolic rate and things like that. But then you get like things like mice and uh, hamsters. It's like, you know, you get a pet hamster and it's also a mammal, you know, it's got most of the same like anatomical equipment we do, a nervous system and everything. And uh, those poor little guys, they're lucky lucky if they live two years, you know what I mean? Um, but I would try to like, and this is true of both human loved ones I've lost and animals. You, you know, you try to steal yourself and prepare yourself, but no matter how intellectually you try to prepare, no matter how rational you try to be, Emotion is just like the emotion you experience during the loss, the deep loss of, of someone you care about, a beloved dog or a human. It's weird how it doesn't, that raw emotion doesn't care how intellectual or rational you try to be. It just breaks through that uh that ice, that surface. And I really experienced that when, you know, it dawned... It dawned on me and came up from a deep place when all of a sudden I heard, you know, that, you know, here I was having a conversation, a real conversation about how my dog was about to be euthanized.
realized. This dog who I've owned for 11 years, who I don't want, you know, offend parents by saying people who have human children by saying I loved it like a child, but I love this dog so much. And every day when I left for work or whatever, even to go out food shopping, it hurt to leave because I would lock, lock eyes with that dog and see its innocent face looking up at me like it didn't understand why I was going out the door. You know what I mean? To have this little being that was such a part of my life and hear that they were about to be put down and, and me giving my permission for it, it's like all this raw emotion just r raged and swelled and broke through the ice of my rational, you know, facade or veneer or whatever. Um, and it's like I realized that some emotion can just be so powerful and raw and sometimes we just we don't have any control over it. Um, and that was all, and, and I remember, and here I get to uh, something I want to talk about. I don't know why, but, uh, um, I remember when, yeah, it has to do with the topic of sad music and kind of listening to sad music and digging into your own wounds. You know what I mean? And it's something that started for me when I was probably in my early teens, you know, you start having like, uh, you know, my first, uh, you know, little relationships, you know, having, uh, the, you know, girlfriends and these short little lived, these short kind of like lived, uh, little middle school or high school relationships. And, you know, it's very emotional and powerful. You're new to romantic love and yet you know, all your hormones are kind of swelling and everything. And, uh, I can remember like when I'd lose a girlfriend or whatever, I would just lock myself in my room and, to li and listen to really sad music. And man, it really was just like the emotional equivalent of digging into your own wounds or, you know, pouring salt on your wounds or whatever. And in one, it's weird because on the one hand, it feels kind of cathartic that you're getting all this out of your system. But on the other hand, it can seem kind of, and maybe is kind of unhealthy, you know, because you're like steeping yourself in all of this negative emotion. And I don't know if it, to be honest, I don't know if it's doing, I don't know if, if it does more harm than good or what. I, I honestly don't know. But I imagine you could look at, you can look at it from different ways on the, like I said, it's on the one hand, you could see it, see it as being cathartic and maybe it is. On the other hand, you could see it as being kind of almost, almost like this morbid, emotional self-indulgence where you're just steeping yourself <laughs> morbidly in all this negative emotion. I don't know. Um, and, and kind of dragging the process out. I, I, I don't know. Um, but when my dog Picasso died, I remember this is how long ago it was. Um, the, uh, that WB show Smallville about, you know, about, uh, you know, Superman, in the early years, um, that was still on. I remember before his death, I had watched an episode of Smallville and something tragic had happened on the show between, you know, two of the characters or something. Maybe a character was killed off. I don't know. But they played this song by the Killers. It's funny. I've made fun of the Killers on the show. And I talk about, um, I, remember, I think I had a YouTube 
video taken down for copyright infringement. But I did a response video to this, um, this kind of confrontation that occurred on some Scandinavian talk show where Richard Dawkins was pitted against Brandon Flowers, the lead singer of The Killers. I actually really like The Killers. I talk about how it came as like a big surprise to me when I found out Brandon Flowers is a devout Mormon. I'm like, the singer for The Killers is a devout Mormon? What the hell? Because um, and maybe it has to do with, you know, me buying into stereotypes. I don't know. But, you know, Brandon, like the, the Killers, it's, they're these, um, you know, they, they were, or I are, I think they're still around, this kind of alternative rock group who was influenced by some like old punk groups and new wave groups I like. Like they were um, heavily influenced by Joy Division. And Joy Division was this old kind of punk new wave group um, out of England. And uh, this is a tragic story about the lead singer. Um, and yeah, the, the story about the lead singer of Joy Division is, is pretty tragic. Uh, Ian Curtis. Um, so Joy Division didn't last that long. because I think they started out in the 70s, I think. Um, and I think he was only 24 when he committed suicide. When, when he uh, committed suicide. But Ian Curtis... Um, yeah, he was the the lead singer for Joy Division. And I remember Joy Division is kind of in a an acquired taste. Um like I remember when I was in like my late teens, early twenties, and started getting really into like old new wave groups and a lot of alternative groups and stuff. Uh one of my favorite movies, I absolutely was like obsessed with the uh Brandon Lee film, The Crow. Um and that movie has such a great soundtrack and that was part of what got me into like new wave and alt music and stuff. And, uh, I think, um, Trent Reznor from Nine Inch Nails does a cover of a, a Joy Division song on, uh, on that album. And I think also the guy who created the graphic novel that the crow was based on, uh, he listened to, English bands like Pitch Pitch Shifter. Pitch Shifter is another great band. They kind of watered down over the years, but uh, their early stuff is so savage and brutal. Uh, early Pitch Shifter is some of my favorite music. Um, and I think he also listened to Joy Division. And uh, after Ian Curtis's uh, suicide the remaining members of Joy Division would go on to become New Order. And they, they have, if you heard them, you'd probably recognize some of their songs, like Blue Monday, Bizarre Love Triangle, uh, stuff like that. Um, why the hell am I talking about? <laughs> okay, okay. Um, I was talking about sad music. But yeah, Joy Division, if you listen to Joy Division, the first time you hear it, you'll probably be like, what the hell is this? You might even laugh. Because Ian Curtis has a very distinctive vocal style. I've never heard anyone sing quite like him. But then it grows on you. And I actually love his voice. I love their music. I don't know how much of his unique vocal, vocal style might have been physiological in the sense that um, he suffered from bad epilepsy 
and would often have seizures. Um, but yeah, he also wrestled with depression. And when he was like 24, he hung himself. Uh, yeah, pretty dark stuff if this wasn't already a dark, uh, a dark episode. I know, I know exactly why I was talking about, um, Joy Division in particular. It's because, um, the killers, the killers, uh, and Brendan Flowers, the singer specifically, were influenced by Joy Division, these other kind of, you know, gritty, like, new wave and alternative bands and stuff. And for some reason, that seems really weird for me that, like, a clean-cut, devout Mormon guy would like the, you know, would like Joy Division and all that shit. I'm like, really? And, uh, and when I saw the, the clash between Richard Dawkins and Brandon Flowers, is it Brendan or Brandon? I don't know. But, you know, I'm kind of rooting for Richard Dawkins, but I'm kind of vicariously cringing for, uh, for the singer from, um, the singer from the killers because he looks so like, like he just saw a ghost or, or whatever. Or like, I was going to say something awful. Like he, like he just saw his dog die. And now we know, you know, there's a reason why people use that saying, uh, or whatever that analogy. Um, and he just looks like, just kind of like sad and lost. He's just kind of staring forward with his mouth kind of open or something. Like Richard Dawkins is just point blank telling him why Mormonism is ridiculous and why it's illogical and wrong to believe in these ludicrous, the ludicrous tenets of the faith that there's this kid in upstate New York who found uh, these magic golden plates and that um, native, uh, certain Native Americans were actually Jews who, uh, who came over you know, from, um, from Israel and that, uh, Jesus, uh, uh, appeared, um, in North America, uh, after his crucifixion or whatever. Um, oh yeah. And there, there's certain things. And I think Richard Dawkins may have mentioned this specifically. I forget. I think I have heard him talk about this though. It's somewhere or at some point that there's something, um, yeah, what's it called? I, I think it's called the, uh, the book of Abraham. But there's this uh, this Mormon text, and Joseph Smith claimed that uh, the book of Mor- uh, the book of Mor- the book of Abraham was written in something called quote unquote reformed Egyptian, this ancient language. You know what I mean? And he actually had uh, papyri, these old kind of tattered papyruses or whatever papyri plural. Um, that he claimed were, you know, these were ancient Mormon texts and uh, they were written in Reformed Egyptian. Well, it turns out that uh, two, you know, two actual scholars, uh, you know, um, linguistic professors or whatever, uh, experts, in their point of view, Reformed Egyptian don't exist. There ain't no such thing. Joseph Smith <laughs> made it up. And those uh, those pieces of papyri or whatever, turns out he got them from, um, you know, purchased them somewhere because it, it did happen to be 
the fact that you used to be able to buy um, all sorts of things that were unearthed in the, uh, in, you know, in Egypt, um, bits of the uh, the ancient Egyptian world. Uh, there used to be awful things called like, uh, I think they're called mummy parties or unwrapping parties where people would gather together to unwrap an ancient dead person, you know. Um, or there's e even examples when, you know, mummies, believe it or not, used to be used for uh, basically as cordwood or um, mummy wraps used to be used as butcher paper and stuff like that. I'm not sure. There are a lot of mummies that were destroyed. And I'm not gonna, actually going to fire up my ab, uh, my iPad just in case what I'm, what I'm saying is bullshit, but I don't think it does. Um, I'll say mummies used as butcher paper. Here's a thing right away. Um, talks about mummies imported from Egypt strip, strip, the the bodies were stripped of their wrappings and used this... I don't know who he's talking about, but he's talking about a, a specific person. But he's saying, as such, he imported mummies from Egypt, stripped the bodies of their wrappings, and used this material for making paper. Several shiploads of mummies were brought to the mill the, the mill and gardener Maine and were thus used to make a brown wrapping paper for grocers, butchers, and other merchants." So, so, you know, sometimes I say stuff that sounds batshit crazy, but usually these little factoids I have in my head turn to check out. <laughs> so, um, yeah. So anyway, yeah, the, the Mormon book of Abraham is a known fraud. Um, you can actually look at these, uh, papyri and see that they were original, um, ancient Egyptian texts, but Joseph Smith tried to pawn them off as uh, ancient Mormon texts that were written in quote-unquote reformed Egyptian. So anyway, Richard Dawkins just completely takes the gloves off and just matter-of-factly fact, tells Brendan Flowers to his face why, um, why Mormonism is bullshit. And I know I was kind of chiding uh, Lawrence Krauss earlier for that kind of thing, but I think if you're someone like Richard Dawkins, who can, you know, actually knows the facts and the history and can spe specifically tell you why a religion is uh, man-made or whatever, and, you know, and also I think if it's not in a debate setting, like this was actually, they, I feel kind of bad for Brendan Flowers. He was on to do an interview and they kind of uh, ambush him all of a sudden you know, the hosts that, oh, we, we, we're also having Richard Dawkins here. Oh, Richard, well, you come, I wonder what you'd say to Brendan Flower, you know? So I think he didn't even realize he was going to be pitted against Dawkins. But I think if you are an atheist debating a Christian apologist, I think that, you know, it's not enough to just say religion's stupid or, you know, your religion claims this this happened and that happened. It's a bunch of bullshit, you know. It's just to be like that dismissively. And I'm not saying this is out of kindness for the people on the other side of the argument. No, it's not about civility to me. It's about you should be able to make informed arguments that have a lot of weight 
behind them and show that you actually know your stuff and you know how the kind of sausage is made. Instead of just saying religious is stupid, you believe some guy walked on water 2,000 years ago. When you're debating a learned apologist who, you know, very well, like the guy Bart Ehrman was facing, this is someone who you might not agree with their conclusion that there actually was a supernatural Jesus or whatever and the miracles were, the miracles in the Bible really occurred. But these are people who may have very well studied, you know, Greek, Aramaic, uh, Latin, people who are extremely well educated, who know the ins and outs of these texts, you know. I think it's better if you have someone who has a really good handle on the history of religion, you know, when you're going up in, in a debate against an educated apologist, um, someone who can tell you why, you know, someone who can name the glaring contradictions in the Bible, um, someone like a Bart Ehrman who can tell you that, you know, really pivotal stories like the woman taken into adultery, how that wasn't originally in the gospel. It's a later add-on, a later interpolation. Um, when, or, you know, if, if you can tell someone that, uh, say something like Jesus's prediction that the temple would be torn down, you know, I mean, that they, this may be a kind of, uh, a retroactive prophecy that um, it's not that um, Jesus actually said this thing and he he said it before the temple uh, was raised by the Romans and what was it roughly 70 AD. Um, it's probably more likely the case that a gospel writer wrote this account, wrote this work after the temple was destroyed and made it look like. Not necessarily that they were trying to be duplicitous or deceptive, but for the sake of the narrative, they thought it would be powerful to have Jesus predict the fall of the temple. You know what I mean? But the, like I said, this but this was something that happened after. And um, whether or not you want to believe that, what you think about it probably depends on what your take is on the dating of uh, specific gospels. Um, and whether or not you're of the mind that this gospel was written after the historical raising of the temple by the Roman Empire. Um, but yeah, so I think if I'm watching a debate and I just see someone kind of dismissively say, well, we've got science, blah, 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 your thing is stupid. You know what I mean? No, it's like, it's better if, it is good if you can sure up your side of the argument by yeah um illustrating the benefits of science and how important science is in you know all different aspects of life and how much it's done for us you know um but at the same time it's also good if you can you know maybe instead of just saying there's ugly stuff in the Bible, if you can specifically point out what parts of the bible do you think are ugly and archaic and immoral um which bits might be nice and maybe do have some value as far as moral instruction goes, but still they shouldn't, you know, it's not a book to be taken literally. And if you 
do have knowledge akin to someone like a Bart Ehrman so you can point out how the sausage is made and why you shouldn't take the Bible literally and think that it was one solid book that drifted down from the heavens, completely written uh, as if by God himself, or that it was, um, you know, divinely inspired and written by a single author. I don't, it's funny, I think despite the fact that when you go to Sunday school or CCD and you're told right there that there's different gospels who are written by certain people, you know, certain people. And we can get into, and I think uh, Bert, uh, Bert, yeah, Bart Ehrman and his opponent on that ep- recent episode of Unbelievable, they actually do get into, you know, the uh, this point of contention, whether or not the Gospels were written by the people they're claimed to be written by. Uh, I think a, a, I think the scholarly consensus seems to be that and this is even if, you know, if you're a Christian or whatever, and you might hear Christian scholars admit this. It's not that the person named in the title of a specific gospel is actually the one who wrote it. That it may very well be the case that these gospels were given like honorary titles. And I think it's been suggested, I think I've heard Bart Ehrman actually say this, that they were essentially anonymous. And then probably as a kind of dedication, they were named for, you know, one of the apostles or something like that. So it's kind of like an honorific title. Um, And there's different views. I think, you know, some scholars may question whether or not Luke wrote Luke. But I think uh, there's a lot of scholars who think that um, in the the case of Luke might be an an exception. The three gospels that seem to be named for apostles of Matthew, Mark, and John. Those are thought to most likely have anonymous authors. Um, and then Luke. I think Luke was the only the only Gentile out of the gospel writers, I think. I think that's the uh, consensus or whatever. And it's thought that um, Luke, historically... Uh, may have been a traveling companion of the Apostle Paul. I think he was also supposedly a physician. Um, So Luke may have written Luke. And I think there's theories about how Luke supposedly has a kind of advanced or sophisticated writing style that's in keeping with Greek literature. So this may have been someone who was learned and who was uh, educated in the writing style of the Greek classics, etc. Um, I know, it's, and I, I've talked about this before on the show that you know the Book of Revelation and the idea of Judgment Day and the return of Christ. This plays such a big part in the minds of modern Christians, um, and yet it's thought. One theory is that. The book of Revelation, its inclusion in the Bible may have been due to a case of mistaken identity that um, there, that early church fathers thought that it was John the Apostle who wrote Revelation, where it turns out that 
uh, it may very well have been another John, a person named John who was an exile living on the Isle, uh, the Greek Isle of uh, Patmos. But yeah, I guess the point I was trying to make is, you know, it's funny, e even when, you know, when you go to Sunday school, you're told there's different gospel writers. So they're telling you right there that it wasn't, the, the Bible doesn't have one author. You know, it's basically two big anthologies. You have uh, the Old Testament, which is made up of various books, and you have the New Testament, which is made up of various books uh, or various texts, you know. But still, it's as if many Christians seem to almost operate as if they think the Bible was divinely inspired and it had, uh, you know, it might as well have had one author. And they get a little um, uneasy when you start to explain, uh, you know, the the number of authors involved in the Bible, um, how different books or you know different different texts might contradict one another, uh, the inconsistencies when you start telling them about how you know some of the most important, I guess uh, important is subjective, but how certain like pivotal. Um, stories might actually be interpolations or whatever, uh, or, or you know, key things might be uh, scribal add-ons, and so I think it is good, you know, if you're going to have someone who's debating a Christian apologist, a learned Christian apologist, that's good to have someone who has some knowledge of uh, you know, the the history of the New Testament, um. Uh, some grasp of the Old Testament and the fact that's made by various authors, made up of books and texts by various authors, some of them uh, redundant, etc. In the early days of the show, I used to talk about these all the time. Uh, what the heck are they? Oh, yeah, I just remembered. Doublets. I saw about doublets a lot. Hell yeah, there are some um, portions of the Bible that either seem redundant or that may contradict one another some people might still try to harmonize them like the the fact that there's different accounts of the uh flood narrative different um accounts of how many animals uh were brought on the ark or whatever and so once again this isn't about civility to me it's about the fact that if you're engaged with a learned well-educated christian apologist and all you have to throw at them is, you know, these generalities about how the Bible is stupid or whatever. <laughs> you know what I mean? Uh, maybe you can name one or two miracle stories you know of and say, oh, that's stupid. No one believes that. You're up against someone who, even though you might view it as being naive, and this, from my opinion, probably, you know, I'd agree that it's naive, that despite all their learning, they still believe in these texts literally in a certain sense where they believe in the medical where they believe in the miracle stories they believe in um a literal resurrection etc this is still a well-educated person who as an apologist they've been skilled to engage people even people who are very knowledgeable about the bible and all the contradictions and this and that so you put them up against someone who all they can do is very generally say the Bible's stupid. I mean, they're going to be able to emphasize and focus on, 
your lack of knowledge about, you know, the history of world religion or the history of the New Testament or uh, of religion in general and use that against you and try and make you look um, ignorant. You know what I mean? I mean, you could argue there might be something for civility. Uh, I mean, if you can dismantle someone else's argument or worldview while doing it in a, you know, a even keeled civil way, that might be more palatable. That being said, if you do know your stuff, I think it's okay to throw uh, a few barbs too and, uh, you know, make things entertaining. And so, you know, once again, I think this is why Christopher Hitchens was such a great, you know, debater or opponent. Um, and he was like the best kind of guy to put up against learned Christian apologists. Because this was someone who was an author, who was well-educated, very well-spoken, very eloquent. And he could tell you why he didn't buy certain aspects of the Bible. And he could point out the weaknesses in the text. At the same time, he could also, just for good measure, take you down a peg and casually show you as being, you know, absurd in your view or in your, you know, your assertions or whatever. Um, he was kind of the best of both worlds. He, he could dismantle your arguments um, in, a, in an eloquent, educated manner. At the same time, in his own suave kind of way, he could also kind of kick the chair from out of, you know, kick the chair out from under you um, with a biting yet casually delivered remark. So this episode, well over two hours ago, started out being about my dog. Uh, and somehow I keep laying into uh, Lawrence Krauss. I'm not sure why. <laughs> Hopefully I'm not being unfair. It's been a long time since I watched uh, Lawrence Krauss uh, debate anyone. And I think, like, let's say if you have a physicist who, do, who is, you know, isn't uh, also kind of an armchair uh, biblical scholar, I think there's still a place for people like that. Uh, there was a lot of uh, unintended alliteration, lots of peas. Um, you know, it, someone like Lawrence Krauss can use their knowledge of science and physics and, and with just enough knowledge of, uh, the Bible and, you know, where it clashes with science, you know, they can use their scientific knowledge to point out where the Bible, uh, or whatever religious text really gets it wrong, um, and I think that would be a better approach than just being dismissive. And I think it would be more impactful. So now we're, uh, we're about at the three-hour mark. And so, yeah. Um, around the time my dog Picasso died, you know, I'd become aware of the music of the Killers. And there was that one song they happened to use in a Smallville episode. But it's a song called... I think it's, I think the actual title might be Good Night, Travel Well. And it's just this really sad song, almost uh, dirgeful or, you know, like a dirge. And uh, is dirgeful an actual word? I feel like it is, but just in case. Um, and I know I was just making fun of uh, Brandon Flowers. 
but I don't know if he writes the lyrics for the killers or, you know, some bands, uh, different band members write the lyrics to different songs or whatever. But I, I always assume because in my band, it was always the case that, you know, I sang and I wrote the lyrics. So I tend to assume I tend to assume that other um, vocalists, lead singers are the ones writing the lyrics. But if he is the sole lyricist, I don't know, then hats off to him for the lyrics to that song. Because those, the lyrics to Good Night Travel Well are absolutely unbelievable. And it's a song that expresses like the depth of mourning and grief so well it's uh it's a song i even have to be careful of talking about it you know because i don't want to tear up and so i remember i was listening to the killers after my dog died and i heard that song and it struck me oh man it just it actually had me in tears and i'm I'm trying to think of the the lyrics. Like I think the first lyric might be the unseen distance to the great beyond stares back at my grieving frame. I'm going to look it up. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so it goes the unknown distance to the great beyond stares back at my grieving frame to cast my shadow by the holy sun. My spirit moans with a sacred pain. And it's quiet now. The universe is standing still. There's nothing I can say. There's nothing we can do now. Yeah, so just real, I mean, whether he's a Mormon, whatever he is, uh, extremely powerful lyrics, and they're kind of married with the perfect music. I'm Yeah, I, I heard that after my dog died. And that song, oh, I listened to it a few times, almost like returning to, you know, like that. Once again, I don't know if it's healthy or unhealthy, but that uh, habit of emotionally digging into my own wounds after experiencing a loss. And for a lot, even, and so, yeah, yeah, I'll get to it. Don't ask me why. It might seem like a very kind of like a self-destructive or self-defeating thing to do, but the day after I came home, you know, from crying and, you know, having my dog euthanized, I listen to music while I'm riding my exercise bike. So I go on my exercise bike and yeah, I did it. I fired up Good Night Travel Well. And I was just blubbering again, man. It was awful. And then after that, for good measure, I listened to uh, Death Cab for Cuties. Uh, that band, I actually, I like that band. Uh, I used to love their song, um, when soul meets body, or maybe it's just soul meets body. I don't know, but I listened to their song. I'll follow you into the dark. Let me find the lyrics to that one. Yeah. It's entitled, I I will follow you into the dark. Just enough. And it's like a song dripping with, with, you know, sentimentality. It's a really kind of kind of slow kind of moving song um but yeah these lit i almost i'm almost afraid to uh read them because it, it could make me cry now you guys probably didn't know 
<laughs> I could blubber like this. And it's not easy, though. It takes something like, you know, I love my my dogs. It takes something like the loss of a dog or the loss of a human loved one, you know. Other than that, I don't cry easy. Um, yeah, love of mine, someday you will die, but I'll be close behind and I'll follow you into the dark. No blinding light or tunnels to gates of white. Just our hands clasped, clasped so tight, waiting for the hint of a spark. If heaven and hell decide they both are satisfied and illuminate the nose on their vacancy signs, if there's no one beside you when your soul embarks, then I'll follow you into the dark. So just really, just really powerful stuff. And almost like that Killers song, it really in a nice poetic way and in kind of a novel way really distills that feeling of when you lose someone in those that feeling of of loss and separation it's just powerful stuff and so uh yeah so wow yeah this has been over three hours three hour unscripted episode and so, yeah, oh my, uh, I gotta watch it, man. I, I almost feel the waterworks. And so, yeah, I've started looking at like classifieds and looking up breeders and stuff. It's funny. So I found this one breeder on Facebook and they wanted, uh, they, they say they make all prospective, you know, um, puppy buyers to, answer a questionnaire and and she answered she instead of sending the questionnaire she asked me like she has listed in in a facebook message the questions they tend to ask it was things like what kind of work do you do how long are you how long are you away from home each day are there children or other animals around so i like gladly answered all the questions and uh, so far, she hasn't gotten back to me because supposedly she has a dog that's expecting now. And um, of course, you know, any ethical breeder will make you wait at least 10 weeks before you can bring a puppy home, you know, before they can uh, leave their mother. And so I want to kind of try to find out now if she sees me as a potential candidate. So I'm probably going to have to e uh, message her back because she didn't get back to me. And I just told a female friend who happened to get in touch with me. And I thought it was because maybe she saw that on the Weekend Out Facebook page that I mentioned my dog being euthanized. And I told her and she was totally surprised because she actually really liked Olive. And there's even there's even pictures of her like holding Olive and stuff. And um, And so I was talking to her about it. And I kind of jokingly, you know, I said uh, half jokingly, I'm, I hope she doesn't uh, go through my, you know, my Facebook pages and, uh, and discover that I'm an atheistic chaos magician. And that's, you know, I, I just put it that way because I thought it was funny and over the top. Um, I don't buy into any of the superstitious you know, implications of clay, of uh, chaos magic any more than I believe in any of the super superstitious claims, you know, faith, faith claims made by any of the world's religions. Uh, I don't believe in the supernatural, you know. But um, for a while, I was interested in it, almost the way you might be interested in meditation, just for like a way to kind of explore your own consciousness and kind of fool around with, um, uh, 
your perception of reality or whatever. Um, but I thought that was a fine way to put it. Like if someone, you know, let's say I'm hoping they're not, but they might be. I think I may have seen like religious things on their Facebook page. So, you know, obviously someone like me, what could go wrong if you're trying to buy a puppy and the person who, who's going to sell it to you is, uh, you know, a religious person. I'm just thinking about worst case scenarios. Like they find my podcast, they find my Facebook, they find that I'm someone who, you know, applauds the work of the uh, satanic temple, who does documentaries on things like Baphomet, uh, you know, someone who's, an, you know, a godless atheist, um, and who posts like, you know, kind of racy memes and stuff on their Facebook page. Uh, I thought that was kind of a funny way to put it in a nutshell, a, uh, an atheistic chaos magician. Um, but, you know, what someone might find, what someone might, what kind, of conclu- what kind of conclusion someone might come to when they weigh all the facts, you know, things like, I'm an atheist, uh, I'm fascinated with, uh, with occultism and stuff like that. Anyway, you get what I'm saying. But, man, I'm tired. I've been at this for three hours, so I'm going to go to sleep. If, if you guys were able to actually make it this far in, I applaud you. Um, and, uh, as always, thanks for listening. Uh, I love you uh, guys and girls, brothers and sisters out there. Until the next time. And illuminate the nose on their vacancy signs If there's no one beside you when your soul embarks Then I'll follow you into the dark In Catholic school, as vicious as Roman